I believe you can make the entire case for being extremely concerned about AI, assuming that AI will never be smarter than a human. Instead, it will be as capable as the most capable humans, and there will be a ton of them because unlike humans, you can just copy them. You can use your copies to come up with ways to make it more efficient, just like humans do. Then you can make more copies. And when we talk about whether AI could defeat humanity, and I've written one blog post on whether AI could kind of like take over the world, they don't have to be more capable than humans. They could be equally capable and there could be more of them. That, that could really do it. That could really be enough that then we wouldn't be, humans wouldn't be in control of the world anymore. So I'm, I'm basically generally happy to just have all discussions about AI and what the risks are just in this world where like there's nothing more capable than a human, but it's pretty scary to have a lot of those that have different values from humans and are kind of a second advanced species. Um, that's not to rule out that, that some of these super intelligence concerns could be real. It's just like they're not always necessary and they can sideline people. People always love an interview with Holden, founder of Open Philanthropy. We last spoke with Holden in 2021 about his theory that we're plausibly living in the most important century of all of those that are yet to come. And today we discuss other things that have been preoccupying him lately, including what the real challenges are that are raised by rapid advances in AI, why not just gradually solve those problems as they come up, what multiple different groups are able to do about it, including listeners to this show, governments, uh, computer security experts, journalists, uh, and, and, and on and on, what various different groups are getting wrong about AI in, in Holden's opinion, how we might just succeed with artificial intelligence by, by sheer luck, uh, Holden's four different categories of useful work uh, to, to help with AI, uh, plus, plus a few random audience questions as well. At the end, we also talk through why Holden rejects impartiality as a core principle of morality and his non-realist conception of why it is that he bothers to try to, to help others at all. After the interview, I uh, also respond to some reactions we got to the previous interview with, with Ezra Klein. Without further ado, I bring you Holden Karnofsky. Today, I'm again speaking with Holden Karnofsky. In 2007, Holden co-founded the charity evaluator GiveWell, and then in 2014, he co-founded the foundation Open Philanthropy, which works to find the highest impact grant opportunities and has so far recommended around $2 billion in grants. But in March 2023, Holden started a leave of absence from Open Philanthropy to instead explore working directly on AI safety and ways of improving outcomes from recent advances in AI. He also blogs at cold-takes.com about futurism, quantitative macro history and epistemology, though recently he's had, uh, again, a particular focus on AI, uh, writing posts like how we could stumble into AI catastrophe, racing through a minefield, the AI deployment problem, and jobs that can help with the most important century. I should note that Open Philanthropy is 80,000 Hours' biggest supporter, and that Holden's wife is Daniela Amade, the president of the AI Lab Anthropic. Thanks for returning to the podcast, Holden. Thanks for having me. I hope to talk about what you would most like to see people do to positively shape the development of AI, as well as your reservations about utilitarianism. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Sure. Uh, currently on a leave of absence from Open Philanthropy, just taking a little time to explore different ways I might be able to do direct work to reduce uh, potential risks from advanced AI. Uh, one of the main things I've been trying to do recently, although there's a couple things I'm looking into, is understanding what it might look like to have uh, AI safety standards, by which I mean sort of documenting expectations that AI companies and other labs won't build and deploy AIs that pose too much risk to the world um, as evaluated by some sort of systematic evaluation regime. Um, these uh, expectations could be 
done via self-regulation, via regulation regulation. Uh, there's a lot of potential interrelated pieces. So to make this work, I think you would need ways of evaluating when an AI system is dangerous. That's sometimes called evals. Then you would need potential standards uh, that would basically talk about how you connect what you're seeing from the evals with what kind of measures you have to take to ensure safety. Then also to make this whole system work, you would need some way of making the case to the general public that standards are important. Um, so companies are more likely to adhere to them. And so uh, things I've been working on include trying to understand what standards look like in more mature industries, uh, doing, you know, doing one case study and kind of trying to fund some other ones there, uh, trying to learn lessons from what's already worked in the past elsewhere. I've been advising uh, groups like ARC evals, thinking about what evals and standards could look like. And I've been trying to understand what pieces of the, the case for standards are and are not resonating with people so I can think about how to kind of increase public support for this kind of thing. So it's, uh, it's pretty exploratory right now, but that's been one of the main things I've been thinking about. Yeah, I guess there's a there's a huge surface area on ways one might attack this problem. Why why the focus on standards and, and evals in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we can get to this, but I, I've kind of been thinking a lot about what the major risks are from advanced AI and what the major ways of reducing them are. And, um, you know, I think there's there's kind of a few different components that seem most promising to me as part of, I don't know, most stories I can tell in my head for how we get the risks down very far. And this is the piece of the puzzle that to me feels like it has a lot of potential, but there isn't much action on it right now. And that I, uh, someone with my skills can potentially play a big role in helping to get things off the ground, helping to spur a bit more action, uh, getting people to, you know, to just like move a little faster. Um, I'm not sure this is like what I want to be doing for the long run, but I think that it's in this kind of nascent phase where my kind of background with just starting up things in very vaguely defined areas and getting to the point where they're a little bit more mature is, is maybe maybe helpful. Yeah. Uh, how has it been no longer leading an organization with with tons of, of employees and being able to self-direct a little bit more? I, I, you wouldn't have been in that situation for, for quite some time, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was somewhat gradual. So uh, we've been talking for, for several years now, I think at least since 2018 or so, about succession at Open Philanthropy, because I've always been a person who likes to start things and likes to be in there in that nascent phase and, you know, prefers always to find someone else who can who can run an organization for the long run. And we, you know, a couple of years ago, Alexander became co-CEO with me and has taken on more and more duties. So it wasn't an overnight thing. And I'm still not completely uninvolved. I mean, I'm still on the board of Open Philanthropy. I'm still meeting with people. I'm still advising, um, you know, kind of similar to GiveWell. I had a very, very gradual transition away from GiveWell and still talk to them uh, frequently. So it's, you know, it's been a gradual thing. But for me, it is an improvement. I think it's not my happy place uh, to be at the top of that org chart. Yeah. Okay, so today we're not going to rehash the, the basic arguments for worrying about um, ways that AI advances could go wrong, uh, or ways that maybe this century could uh, could turn out to be really unusually important. But I think you know AI risk. People people have heard of it now. <laughs> we've done lots of we've done lots of episodes on it. Uh, and I guess um, people who wanted to hear your your broader worldview on this could could go back to previous interviews, including with you, uh, such as episode one hundred nine, um, Holden Kanofsky on the most important century. In my mind, the the risks are both pretty near term, and uh, I think increasingly kind of apparent. So, so to me, it feels like uh, the point in this whole story where we need to get down a bit more to brass tacks and start debating what is to be done and, and uh, figuring out what, what things might, might really help that, that we could, could get moving on. Uh, that said, we should take a minute to think about you know, which aspect of this broader problem are we talking about today and which one are you thinking about? Of course, there's risks from misalignment. So uh, AI models com completely flipping out and trying to take over uh, would be an extreme case of that. Then there's misuse where the models are doing what 
people are telling them to do, but uh, but we wish <laughs> we wish that they weren't, uh, perhaps. <laughs> and then uh, I guess that there's other risks like just speeding up history, causing a whole lot of stuff to happen incredibly quickly, and perhaps that leading us into disaster. Uh, yeah, which which of uh, the aspects of, the, of this broader problem do you think of yourself as trying to contribute to solve right now? Yeah, I mean, first off, to your point, I mean, I, I I am happy to focus on solutions, but I do think it can be hard to have a really good conversation about solutions without having some kind of shared understanding of the problem. And I think while a lot of people are getting vaguely scared about AI, um, I think there's still a lot a lot of room to have, uh, you know, a lot of room to disagree on what exactly the most important aspects of the problem are, what exactly the biggest risks are. Um, for me, the two you named, misalignment and misuse, are definitely big. I would throw some others in there too that I think are also big. I think, um, you know, we may be on the cusp of having a lot of things work really differently about the world and in particular having kind of uh, what you might think of as new life forms, whether that's AIs or, or uh, you know, I've written in the past on cold takes about digital people that if, if we had the right technology, which we might be able to develop with AI's help, we might have kind of, you know, simulations of humans that we ought to think of as kind of humans like us. Um, and that could lead to a lot of challenges, you know, just the, the, the fact, for example, that you could you could have human rights abuses happening inside a computer. Uh, seems like a very strange situation that society uh, has not really dealt with before. And I think there's a bunch of other things like that. Um, what kind of world do we have when someone can just make copies of people or of minds um, and ensure that those copies believe certain things and defend certain ideas? That, I think, could challenge the way a lot of our existing institutions work. So, And there's a, there's a nice piece, Propositions About Digital Minds, that I think gives a flavor for this. So I think there's a, whole, there's a whole bunch of things I would point to as important. I think out of, you know, in this category, I think if I had to name one risk that I'm most focused on, it's probably the misaligned AI risk. It's probably the one about, um, you know, you kind of build these very capable, very powerful AI systems there are these systems that if for whatever reason they were pointed at bringing down all of human civilization, they could. And then something about your training is kind of sloppy or leads to unintended consequences so that you actually do have AIs trying to bring down civilization. I think that is that is probably the biggest one. But I think there's also like a meta a meta threat that that to me is really the unifying catastrophic risk of AI. And so for me, that I would abbreviate as just saying like explosively fast progress. So the central idea of the most important century series that I wrote is that if you get an AI with certain properties, there's a bunch of reasons from economic theory, from someone from economic history. I think we're also putting together some reasons now that you can take more from the specifics of how AI works and how algorithms development works to expect that you could get a dramatic acceleration in the rate of change and particularly in the rate of scientific and technological advancement, particularly in the rate of AI advancement itself, so that things move on a much faster timescale than anyone is used to. And one of the central things I say in the Most Important Century series is that if you imagine a wacky sci-fi future, the kind of thing you would imagine thousands of years from now for, from, for humanity with all these wacky technologies, that might actually be years or months from the time when you get in range of these like super powerful AIs that have certain properties. That to me is the central problem. And I think all these other risks that we're talking about, you know, they wouldn't have the same edge to them if it weren't for that. So misaligned AI, you know, if AI systems got very gradually more powerful and we spent a decade with systems that were kind of close to close to as capable as humans, but not really, and then a decade with systems that were about as capable as humans with some strengths and some weaknesses, then a decade of systems a little more capable. You know, I wouldn't really be that worried. I feel like this is something we could kind of adapt to as we went and figure out as we went along. Similarly with misuse, I mean, AI systems might end up able to 
help develop powerful technologies that are very scary, but that wouldn't be as big a deal. It would be kind of a continuation of history um, if this just went in a gradual way. And my big concern is that it's not gradual. I think it may be worth digging on that a little bit more is, is exactly how fast do I mean and why, even though I have covered it somewhat in the past, because that to me is, is really the central issue. And one of the reasons I'm so interested in AI safety standards is because it is kind of, no matter what risk you're worried about, I think you hopefully should be able to get on board with the idea that you should measure the risk and not unwittingly deploy AI systems that are carrying a ton of the risk before you've at least made a deliberate, informed decision to do so. Um, and I think if we do that, we can anticipate a lot of different risks and stop them from coming at us too fast. Too fast is the central theme for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting framing to put the speed of advancement like front and center as this is kind of the, the key way that this could go off the rails in, in all sorts of different directions. So Elias Yudkowsky has this kind of classic story about how you get an AI taking over the world like remarkably quickly. And a key part of the story, as he tells it, is this sudden self-improvement loop where the AI gets better at doing AI research and then improves itself. And then it's better at doing that again. And, and, and so you get this recursive loop where suddenly you go from somewhat human uh, level intelligence to something that's very, very, very superhuman. And I think many people reject that primarily because they reject the speed uh, idea that they think yes if you got that level of advancement over a period of days sure uh, that that might happen right but but actually i just don't expect that recursive um, loop to be to be quite so quick and likewise if we might worry that AI might be used by people to, to make bioweapons. But if that's something that gradually came online over a period of decades, we probably have all kinds of responses that we could use to try to, to, try to prevent that. But if it goes from one week to the next, <laughs> then we're in a, yeah. in, a, in a tricky spot. Do you want to expand on that? Is, is there maybe like insights that come out of this speed-focused framing of the problem that people aren't taking quite seriously enough? Yeah, I should first say, I don't, I don't know that I'm on the same page as Eliezer. I can't totally always tell, but I think he is picturing probably like a more extreme and faster thing that I'm picturing and probably for somewhat different reasons. I think, uh, you know, a common story in some corners of, of this discourse is this idea of an AI that kind of, it's this kind of simple computer program and it rewrites its own source code. And it's like the, you know, that's where all the action is. I don't think that's that's exactly the picture I have in mind, although there's some similarities. And so that, you know, the kind of thing I'm picturing is maybe more like a month's or year's time period from getting sort of near human level AI systems. And, and what that means is definitely debatable and, and gets messy, but near human level AI systems to just like very, very powerful ones uh, that are advancing science and technology really fast. And then science and technology, like at least on certain fronts that are not, that are the less bottlenecked fronts. And we could talk about bottlenecks in a minute. You get like a huge jump. So I think my, my view is at least somewhat more moderate than Eliezer's and at least has somewhat different dynamics. But I think there there is, you know, both both points of view are talking about this rapid change. I think without the rapid change, A, things are a lot less scary generally. B, I think it is harder to justify a lot of the stuff that AI concerned people do to try and get out ahead of the problem and think about things in advance. Because I think a lot of people sort of complain with this discourse that it's really hard to know the future. And all the stuff we're talking about, what future AI systems are going to do, what we have to do about it today, it's very hard to get that right. It's very hard to anticipate what things will be like in an unfamiliar future. And I think when people complain about that stuff, I'm just like very sympathetic. I think that's like right. And I, if, I, if I thought that we had the option to adapt to everything as it happens, I think I would in many ways be tempted to just work on other problems and then kind of in fact adapt to things as they happen and see what's happening and see what's most needed. And so I think a lot of the case for 
planning things out in advance, trying to tell stories of what might happen, trying to figure out, you know, what kind of regime we're going to want and put the pieces in place today, trying to figure out what kind of research challenge is going to be hard and do them today. I think a lot of the case for that stuff being so important does rely on this theory that things could move a lot faster than anyone is expecting. I am, in fact, very sympathetic to people who would rather just adapt to things as they go. I think that's usually the right way to do things. Um, And I think many Many attempts to anticipate future problems are things I'm just like not that interested in because of this issue. But I think AI is a place where we have to take the explosive progress thing seriously enough that we should be doing our best to prepare for it. Yeah, I guess if you have this explosive growth, then the very strange things that we might be trying to prepare for might be happening in 2027 or, or incredibly soon. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's imaginable, right? And 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 it's all extremely uncertain because we don't know. It's like in, in my head, a lot of it is like there's a... There's a set of properties that an AI system could have, roughly being able to do roughly everything humans are able to do to advance science and technology, or at least able to advance AI research. Um, we don't know when we'll have that. And so it's like, you know, one, one possibility is we're like 30 years away from that. But once we, once we get near that, things will move incredibly fast. And that, that's a, a world we could be in. We could also be in a world where we're only a few years from that. And then yeah. everything's going to get much crazier than anyone thinks, much faster than anyone thinks. Yeah. I guess one narrative is that it's going to be exceedingly difficult to align any artificial intelligence because just you know you have you have to solve these 10 technical problems that we've that we've almost gotten no traction on so far. So just just from so you know it could take us decades or centuries in order to, or to fix them. On this speed focused narrative, it actually seems a little bit more positive because uh you might be saying it might turn out that from a technical standpoint, this isn't that challenging. The problem will be that things are going to run so quickly that we might only have a few months to figure out how, like, what solution yeah. we're choosing and, and actually try to try to apply it in practice. But of course, in as much as we just need to slow down, that is something that in theory, at least, people could agree uh, and actually just and try to coordinate in, in order to do. Uh, do you think that that is going to be a part of the package that we ideally just want to coordinate people as much as possible to make this as gradual as, as feasible? Well, these are separate points. So I think you you could believe in the speed and also believe the alignment problem is really hard. Uh, believing in speed doesn't make the alignment problem any easier. And I think that the speed point is really just just bad news. I mean, I think it's just, you know, mm. I hope things don't move that fast. Uh, if things move that fast, I think most human institutions' ways of reacting to things just we can't count on them to work the way they normally do. And so we're going to have to do our best to get out ahead of things and, and plan ahead and make things better in advance as much as we can. And it's mostly just bad news. There's a separate thing, which is that, yeah, I do. I am less of a I, I do. I do feel less convinced than, than some other people that the alignment problem is this like incredibly hard technical problem and more feel like, yeah, if we if we did have a, a relatively gradual set of developments, I think we'd, we'd have good. I think even with, with a very fast developments, I think there's a good chance we just get lucky and we're fine. So the, I think there, there are two different axes. I know you've talked with Tom Davidson about this a bunch, so I, I don't want to make it like the main theme of the episode, but I do think like. In case someone hasn't listened to every ADK podcast ever, just just getting a little more into the why of, of why totally. you get such an explosive growth and, and why not. I think this is a really key premise, and I think right. most of the rest of what I'm saying doesn't make much sense without it, and I want to own that. Yeah. I don't want to lose out on the fact that I am sympathetic to a lot of reservations about working on AI risk. So, yeah, maybe maybe it would be good to cover that a bit. Yeah, let's let's do that. So one obvious mechanism by which things could speed up is that you have this positive feedback loop where the AIs yeah. get better at, at improving themselves. Is, is there is there much more to the to the story than that? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's worth recapping that briefly. I mean, I think one observation I think is interesting, and this is a you know report by David Rudman for Open Philanthropy that goes through this. One thing that I've wondered is just like if you take the path of world economic growth throughout history and you just kind of extrapolate it forward in the simplest way you can, what do you get? 
And it's like, well, it depends what time period you're looking at. If you look at economic history since 1900 or 1950, we've had a few percent of year growth over that entire time. And if you extrapolate it forward, you get a few percent of year growth and you just get the world everyone is kind of already expecting and the world that's in the UN projections, all that stuff. The interesting thing is if you zoom out and look at all of economic history, you see that economic progress for most of history, not, not recently, has been accelerating. And if you try to model that acceleration in, in a simple way and project that out in a simple way, you get basically the economy going to infinite size sometime this century, which is like a wild, you know, a wild thing to get uh, from a simple extrapolation. And I think a question is like, why is that and why might it not be? And I think the basic, you know, the basic framework I have in mind is like there is a feedback loop you can have in the economy where People um, have new ideas, new innovations. That makes them more productive. Once they're more productive, they have more resources. Once they have more resources, they have more kids. There's more population or there's fewer deaths and there's more people. So it goes more people, more ideas, more resources, more people, more ideas, more resources. And when you have that kind of feedback loop in place, any economic theory will tell you that you get what's called super exponential growth, which is growth that's accelerating. It's accelerating on an exponential basis. And that kind of growth is very explosive, is very hard to track, and can go to infinity in, in finite time. The thing that changed a couple hundred years ago is that one piece of that feedback loop stopped for humanity. Um, people basically stopped turning more resources into more people. So right now, when people get richer, they don't have more kids. They just get richer. Buy another car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so that feedback loop kind of broke. That's not like a bad thing that it broke, I don't think, but it, you know, it kind of broke. Um, and so we've had just like what's called normal exponential growth, which is still fast, um, but which is not the same thing, doesn't have the same explosiveness to it. And the thing that I think is interesting and different about AI is that if you get AI to the point where it's doing the same thing humans do to have new ideas to improve productivity, so this is like the science and invention part, then you can turn resources into AIs in this very simple linear way that you can't do with humans. And so you could get an AI feedback loop. Um, and just to be a little more specific about what it might look like, you know, right now, right now, AI systems are getting a lot more efficient. You can do a lot more with the same amount of compute than you could 10 years ago. Um, actually, a dramatic amount more. I think I think something, you know, various measurements of this or something like you can get the same performance for something like 18x or 15x less compute compared to like a few years ago, maybe a decade ago. Why is that? And it's because there's a bunch of human beings who have worked on making AI algorithms more efficient. So to me, the big scary thing is when you have an AI that does whatever those human beings were doing. And there's no particular reason you couldn't have that because what those human beings were doing, as far as I know, was mostly kind of like sitting at computers, thinking of stuff, trying stuff. Um, there's no particular reason you couldn't automate that. Once you automate that, here's the, here's the scary thing. You have a bunch of AIs. You use those AIs to come up with new ideas to make your AIs more efficient. Then let's say that you make your AIs twice as efficient. Well, now you have twice as many AIs. And so if having twice as many AIs can make your AIs twice as efficient again, there's really no telling where that ends. Um, and Tom Davidson did a bunch of analysis of this, and, and I'm still kind of poking it and thinking about it, but I think there's at least a decent chance that that is the kind of thing that leads to like explosive progress where AI could really take off and get very capable very fast. And you can extend that somewhat to other areas of science. And it's like, you know, it's some of this will be bottlenecked. Some of this will be like, you can only move so fast because you have to do a bunch of experiments in the real world. You have to build a bunch of stuff. Um, and I think some of it will only be a little bottlenecked or will only be somewhat bottlenecked. And I think there are some feedback loops just kind of going from like, you get more money, you're able to kind of like 
quickly with automated factories, build more stuff like solar panels, you get more energy and then you get more money and then you're able to do that again. And it's like in that loop, you have this part where you're making everything more efficient all the time. And, you know, I'm not going into all the details here. It's been gone into more detail in my blog post, The Most Important Century and Tom Davidson uh, in his podcast and continues to think about it. But that's, you know, that's the basic model is that you have this feedback loop that we have observed in history that doesn't work for humans right now, but could work for AIs, where you have AIs have ideas in some sense, make things more efficient. When things get more efficient, you have more AIs. That creates a feedback loop. That's where you get your super exponential growth. Yeah. So so one way of describing this is talking about you get uh, you, the artificial intelligence becomes more intelligent, and that makes it more capable of improving its intelligence, and so it becomes uh, super, super smart. But I guess uh, the way that you're telling it emphasizes a different aspect, which is not so much that it's becoming super smart, but that it uh, is becoming super numerous, <laughs> or that yep. you can get effectively a population explosion. And I think some, some people are skeptical of this super intelligent story because they think you get really declining returns to being smarter, and that there's like some ways in which, you know, it just doesn't matter how smart you are, that the world's right. like too, the world's too unpredictable, say, for you to uh, come, up with a, come up with a great plan. But this is a different way by which you, a different mechanism by which you can get the same outcome, which is just that you have this enormous increase in the number of thoughts that that, yeah. uh, that 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 are occurring on computer chips, more or less. And at some point, you know, ninety nine percent of the thoughts that are happening on Earth could basically be be happening, be, be occurring inside artificial intelligences. Uh, and then as they get better and they're able to make more chips more quickly, uh, again, the, the pop, you basically just get the population explosion. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think this is this is a place where I think some people get a little bit rabbit holed on the AI debates because i think there's a lot of room to debate how how big a deal it is to have something that's quote unquote extremely smart or super intelligent or much smarter than a human and it's like okay maybe maybe if you had like something that was kind of like a giant brain or something and and way way smarter whatever that means than us maybe what that would mean is that it would like instantly see how to make all these super weapons and conquer the world and how to convince us of anything and there's all this stuff that that could mean and people debate whether it could mean that, but it's it's uncertain. And I think a thing that's a lot less uncertain, if you're finding yourself skeptical of, of you know, what this smart idea means and where it's going to go and what you can do with it, if you find yourself skeptical of that, then just forget about it. And just, I, I believe you can make the entire case for being extremely concerned about AI, assuming that AI will never be smarter than a human. Instead, it will be as capable as the most capable humans, and there will be a ton of them because unlike humans, you can just copy them. Um, you can copy them. You can use your copies to come up with ways to make it more efficient, just like humans do. Then you can make more copies. And when we talk about whether AI could defeat humanity, and I've written one blog post on whether AI could kind of like take over the world, they don't have to be more capable than humans. They could be equally capable and there could be more of them. That, that could really do it. That could really be enough that then we wouldn't be, humans wouldn't be in control of the world anymore. So I'm, I'm basically generally happy to just have all discussions about AI and what the risks are just in this world where like there's nothing more capable than a human, but it's pretty scary to have a lot of those that have different values from humans and are kind of a second advanced species. Um, that's not to rule out that, that some of these super intelligence concerns could be real. It's just like they're not always necessary and they can sideline people. Yeah, yeah, you can just get get beaten by by force of numbers more or less. I think it's a little bit of a shame that this sheer numbers uh, argument hasn't hasn't really been made very much. It feels like the super intelligent story has been very dominant in in the narrative and uh, and media. And yeah, many people get get off the boat because they because they're skeptical of this intelligence thing. I, I think it kind of is the fault of, of me and maybe uh, pe- people who've been trying to raise the alarm about this because the focus really has been on the super intelligence aspect rather than the super numerousness <laughs> uh, that, that you could get. Yeah, and I don't 
don't know. I mean, I think there's valid concerns like from from that angle for sure. And and I'm not trying to dismiss it, but I but I do, you know, I think it's there's a lot of uncertainty about what what superintelligence means and where it could go. And I think you can raise a lot of these concerns without needing to to have a settled view there. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, with, with Ajay Kotra and Rowan Shah, I've, I found it really instructive to hear from them about what are some kind of common opinions that they don't share or, or maybe even even just regard as misunderstandings. Yeah, so maybe let's, let's go through a couple of those to help maybe situate you in the, in the space of, of ideas here. What's a common opinion among kind of the community of people working to address uh, AI risk that, that you personally don't share? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think one kind of vibe I pick up, and I don't always have the exact quote of whoever said what, but a vibe I pick up is this kind of this kind of framework that kind of says, you know, if we don't align our AIs, we're, we're all going to die. And if we can align our AIs, that's great, and we've solved the problem, and that's the problem we should be thinking about, and, and there's nothing else really worth worrying about. You know, it's kind of like alignment is the whole game would be the hypothesis. And I um, I disagree with, with both ends of that, but especially the latter. So to take the first end would be like, you know, if we if we don't align AI, we're all dead. I mean, first off, I, I just think it's like really unclear, even in the even in the worst case where you get an AI that has like its own values and there's a huge number of them and they kind of team up and take over the world. Even then, it's like really unclear if that means we all die. I think there's like I know there's debates about this. I have I have tried to understand I know that the, the Miri folks, I think, feel really strongly. Clearly, we all die. I've tried to understand where they're coming from, and, and I have not. I think a key point is it just, you know, could be very, very cheap as a percentage of resources, for example, to to let humans have a nice life on Earth and not expand further and, and be cut off in certain ways from threatening, you know, AI's ability to do what it wants. That could be very cheap compared to wiping us all out, and there could be a bunch of reasons one might want to do that. Uh, some of them kind of wacky. Some of them kind of, you know, well, maybe, uh, you know, maybe in another part of the universe, there's kind of someone like the AI that was trying to design its own AI, and that thing ended up with values like the humans. And you know, maybe there's some kind of trade that could be made using like a causal trade. I and mean, we don't need to get into what all this means, but it's like you don't <laughs> yeah. need much. The thing is, you don't need, or like maybe the AI is actually being simulated by humans or something, or by some smarter version of humans or some more powerful version of humans. And being tested to see if it'll wipe out the humans or be nice to them. It's just like you don't need a lot of reasons, you know, to kind of like leave one planet out if you're kind of expanding throughout the galaxy. So that would be one thing is it's just like, I don't know, it's like kind of uncertain what happens even in the worst case. And then there's like, I do think there's a bunch of in-between cases where we kind of have AIs that are like they're they're sort of aligned with humans. Like if you if you think about a, a analogy that often comes up is like humans and natural selection where humans kind of were, were put under pressure by natural selection to have lots of kids or to, you know, do inclusive reproductive fitness. And we kind of, okay, we invented birth control. And a lot of times we, we don't have as many kids as we could and, and stuff like that. But also humans still have kids and love having kids. And a lot of humans like have like 20 different reasons to have kids. And, you know, after a lot of the original ones have been knocked out by weird technologies, they still find some other reason to have kids. And, you know, I don't know, like I, I found myself one day wanting kids and had kind of no idea why and <laughs> invented all these weird reasons. And so I don't know, it's just like, it's not, it's not that odd to think that you could have AI systems that just kind of like, yeah, like they're pretty off kilter from what we were trying to make them do, but it's not like they're doing something completely unrelated either. It's not like they have no drives to do a bunch of stuff related to the stuff we wanted them to do. Then you could also just have situations where, um, 
you know, especially if, if in the early stages of all this, where you, you might have kind of near human level AIs. And so they might have goals of their own, but they might not be able to coordinate very well, or they might not be able to reliably overcome humans. So they might end up cooperating with humans a lot. We might be able to leverage that into kind of um, having AI allies that help us build other AI allies that are more powerful. So we might be able to stay in the game for a long way. So I don't know. I just think things things could be very complicated. It doesn't feel to me like if you if you screw up a little bit with the alignment problem, then we all die. Um, you know, the other part, if we do, if we do align the AI, we're fine. I disagree with much more strongly. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I just right. think, you know, if you, more if you strongly just, than that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, at the first one, I mean, look, I think it would be really bad to have misaligned AI. And I think despite the feeling that I feel it is, it is fairly overrated in some circles. I still think it's like the number one thing for me. Um, just like the single biggest issue in AI is just like, we're, we're building these, potentially very powerful, very replicable, very numerous systems. And we're building them in ways we don't have much insight into whether they have goals, what the goals would be. We're kind of introducing the second advanced species onto the planet that we don't understand. And if that advanced species becomes more numerous and or more capable than us, like we don't have a great argument to think that's going to be good for us. So I'm, I'm on board of the alignment risk is like, I don't know, the number one thing, not the only thing, the number one thing. But I would say, you know, if you just assume that you have a world of very capable AIs that are doing exactly what humans want them to do. Yeah, that's very scary. And I think if that was the world we knew we were going to be in, I would still be totally full-time on AI and still feel that we had so much work to do and we were so not ready for what was coming. You know, certainly there's there's the fact that because of the speed at which things move, you could end up with whoever kind of leads the way on AI or is least cautious having, you know, having a lot of power. And that could be someone really bad. And I don't think we should assume that just because that, if you had some head of state that has really bad values, I don't think we should assume that that person is going to end up being nice after they become, you know, wealthy or powerful or transhuman or mind uploaded or whatever. I don't think there's really any reason to think we should assume that. And then I think there's just a bunch of other things that if things are moving fast, we could end up in a really bad state. Like, you know, are we going to come up with decent frameworks for making sure that uh, the digital minds are not mistreated? Are we going to come up with decent frameworks for kind of like, how to ensure that as we get the ability to create whatever minds we want, we're using that, you know, to to create minds that help us seek the truth instead of create minds that have whatever beliefs we want them to have, stick to those beliefs and try to shape the world around those beliefs. I think Carl Shulman put it as like, you know, are we going to have AI that makes us wiser or more powerfully insane? Um, So I think there's just, there's just a lot, like, I think we're, we're kind of on the cusp of something that is just potentially really big, really world-changing, really transformative, and going to move way too fast. And I think even if we threw out the misalignment problem, we'd have a lot of work to do. And I think a lot of these issues are are actually not getting enough attention. Yeah. I think something that might be going on there is a bit of uh, equivocation in in the word alignment. So you can imagine some people might mean uh, by creating an aligned AI, it's like an AI that kind of goes and does what you tell it to, like a a good employee or something. Whereas other people mean it it is following the correct ideal values and behaviors and is going to going to work to generate the the best outcome and the, and these are really quite quite separate things are very very far apart yeah well the second one i just i don't even know if that's a thing i don't yeah. even really know <laughs> what it's supposed to i mean there's something a little bit in between which is like you can have an ai that like you ask it to do something and it does what you would have told it to do if you had been more informed and if you knew everything it knows that's the the central idea of alignment that i tend to think of but i think that still has all the problems i'm talking about just like 
some humans like seriously do intend to do things that are really nasty and seriously do not intend in any way, even if they knew more, to make the world as nice as we would like it to be. And some humans really do intend and, and really do mean and really will want uh, to say, you know, right now I have these values. Let's say I, this is the religion I follow. This is what I believe in. This is what I care about. And I am creating an AI to help me promote that religion, not to help me question it or revise it or make it better. So, yeah, I think it's that middle one. I think is it does not make it safe. There might be some extreme version that's like, an AI that just figures out what's objectively best for the world and does that or something. And I'm just like, I don't know why we would, I don't know why you would think that would even be a thing to aim for. That's not the alignment problem that I'm interested in, in having solved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's something that some kind of safety focused folks that you potentially collaborate with, or at least uh, talk to uh, that they think that they know, uh, which you think, in fact, we just, nobody knows. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, there's this there's this kind of question of in, in deep learning of, you know, you train an agent on one distribution of data or reward signals or whatever. And now you're wondering when it, it goes out of distribution, when it hits a new kind of environment or a new set of data, how it's going to react to that. So this would be like, how does an AI generalize uh, from training to out of distribution? And I think in general, people have a lot of trouble understanding this and have a lot of trouble predicting this. And I think that's not controversial. I think that's known. But I think it kind of comes down to, or it, it relates to some things where people do seem overly confident. You know, a lot of what people are doing right now with these AI models is they're doing what's called reinforcement learning on human feedback or, or from human feedback, where the basic idea is you you have an AI that tries something and then a human says, that was great or that wasn't so good. Or, or maybe the AI sort of tries two things. The human says, which one was better? And, you know, if you do that, and, and that's a major way you're training your AI system, there's this question of, like, what do you get as a result of that? Uh, do you get an AI system that is actually doing what humans want it to do? Do you get an AI system that's doing what humans would want it to do if they kind of knew all the facts? Uh, do you get an AI system that is, like, tricking humans into thinking it did what they wanted it to do? Do you get an AI system that's sort of trying to maximize paperclips, and one way to do that is to do what humans want it to do? So as far as you can tell, it's doing what you want it to do, but it's actually trying to maximize paperclips. Like, <laughs> yeah. which of those do you get? And I think that just, like, people don't, like, we don't know, and I, I see overconfidence on both sides of this. I think I see people saying, we're going to basically train this thing to do nice things and it'll keep doing nice things as it operates in an increasingly changing world. And then I see people saying, we're going to train AI to do nice things and it will basically pick up on some weird correlate of our training and try to maximize that and will, you know, will not actually be nice. And I'm just like, geez, we, we, we don't know. Uh, we don't know. And there's, there's arguments that say, oh, wouldn't it be weird if it came out doing exactly what we wanted it to do? Because there's this wide space of other things that could generalize to it. I, I just think those arguments are just kind of weak and they're not very well fleshed out. And there's genuinely just a ton of vagueness and, and not good understanding of what's going on in a neural net and, and how it generalizes from this kind of training. So, you know, the upshot of that is I, I think people are, often just over overconfident that AI alignment is going to be easy or hard. I think there's people who think, you know, we basically got the right framework, we got to debug it. And there's people who think this framework is doomed, it's not going to work, we need something better. And I just like don't think either is right. I think if we just go on the default course and we just kind of like train AIs based on what looks nice to us, that could totally go fine and it could totally go disastrously. And I know weirdly few people who, who believe both those things. Um, a lot of people seem to be overconfidently in one camp or the other on that. 
Yeah, I'm completely with you on, on this one. I think it's one of the things that I've started to believe more over the, over the last six months is just it's no one really has super strong arguments for like what kind of motivational architecture the, these uh, these ML systems are, are going to develop. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's that's maybe an improvement relative to where I was before because I was a little bit more on the on the Duma side before. Um, I guess it's also I, I feel like this one th- there should be some empirical way of investigating this. You know, p- people do have good points that uh, a really super intelligent, uh, an incredibly sneaky model will behave exactly the same regardless of its underlying uh, motive. But you could try to investigate this on less intelligent, like less crafty models, and surely you would be able to gain some insight into the way it's thinking and like, how, how its motives uh, actually cash out. I think it's really hard. It's just, it's just like <laughs> yeah. really, I mean, it's really hard to make generalized statements about how an AI generalizes to weird new situations. Um, and I, yeah, there is there is work going on, like trying to understand this, but it's going to be, A, it's just been hard to get anything that feels satisfyingly analogous to the problem we care about right now with AI systems and their current capabilities. And even once we do, I think there'll be plenty of arguments that are just like, well, once the AI systems are more capable than that, everything's going to change. And, and AI will generalize differently when it understands who we are and what our training is and how that works and how the world works. And it understands that it could take over the world if it wanted to. Like that that actually could cause an AI to generalize differently. So, you know, as an example, um, this is something I've, I've written about on Cold Takes. I call it the King Lear problem. So King Lear is a Shakespearean character who kind of has three daughters and he asks them each to describe their love for him. And then he kind of like hands the kingdom over to the ones that he feels good about after hearing their speeches. And he, he just picks wrong. And then that's too bad uh, for him. And, uh, you know, the issue is it's like, it's like it flips on a dime. It's like the two daughters who are like the more evil ones were doing a much better job pretending they loved him a ton because they knew that they didn't have power yet and they would get power later. So it actually like their behavior depended on their calculation of what was going to happen. Um, And so the analogy to AI is it's kind of like you might have an AI system that's like kind of maybe what its motivational system is, is it's trying to maximize the number of humans that are saying, hey, good job. This is obviously a bit of a simplification or dramatization. And it kind of is understanding at all points that if it could take over the world, enslave all the humans, make a bunch of clones of them, and like run them all in loops saying good job, if it could, then it would, and it should. Um, But if it can't, then maybe it should just cooperate with us and be nice. You can have an AI system that's like running that whole calc, and humans often run that whole calc, like right as a, as a as a kid in school. I might often be thinking, well, you know, if I can get away with this, then this is what I want to do. If I can't get away with this, maybe I'll just do what the teacher wants me to do. So you could have AIs with that whole motivational system, and then it's like cool. So now it's like you put them in a test environment, and you test if they're going to be nice or try and take over the world. But in the test environment, they can't take over the world, so they're going to be nice. Now you're like, great, this thing is safe. You put it out in the world. Now there's a zillion of it running around. Well, now it can take over the world. So now it's going to behave differently. So you can have just like one consistent motivational system that is fiendishly hard to do a test of how that system generalizes when it has power because you can't generalize. You can't test what happens when it's no longer a test. What's the view that's common among ML researchers, which you you disagree with? You know, it it depends a little bit which ML researchers for sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I would definitely say that I've been a big bitter lesson person uh, since at least 2017. And, yeah. you know, I, I got a lot of this from just like Dario Amade, uh, my, my wife's brother, who is CEO of Anthropic and, and I think has been like very insightful. A lot of what's gone on in AI over the last few years is just like bigger models, more data, more training. And there, there's an essay called The Bitter Lesson by, by an ML researcher, Rich Sutton, that just kind of says, you know, ML researchers keep coming up with cleverer and cleverer ways to design AI systems. And then those 
clevernesses keep getting obsoleted by just making the things bigger and just like training them more and putting in more data. And so, you know, I've had a lot of arguments over the last few years and, you know, in general, have heard people arguing with each other um, that are just kind of like on one side, it's like, well, today's AI systems can do some cool things, but they'll never be able to do this. And to do this, like maybe that's reasoning, creativity, you know, something like that. We're going to need a whole new approach to AI. And then the other side will say, no, I think we just need to make them bigger and then they'll be able to do this. Um, I, I tend almost entirely toward that toward that just make a bigger view. I think just at least in the limit, if you if you took an AI system and made it really big, you might need to make some tweaks, but the tweaks wouldn't necessarily be like really hard or require giant conceptual breakthroughs. I do tend to think that that whatever it is humans can do, we could probably eventually get an AI to do it. And eventually it's not going to be a very fancy AI. It could be just like a very simple AI with some easy to articulate stuff. And a lot of the challenge come from making it really big, putting in a lot of data. Um, I think this view has become like more popular over the years than it used to be, but it's still like pretty debated. I think a lot of people are still looking at today's models and saying, hey, there's fundamental limitations. We're going to need a whole new approach to AI before they can do X or Y. I'm just kind of out on that. I, 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 I think it's possible. I'm not confident. This is just like where, where my instinct tends to lie. That's a disagreement. I think another disagreement I have uh, with with some ML researchers, I think not all at all, but but there's sometimes just I, I feel like a background sense that just like sharing openly information, publishing, open sourcing, et cetera, is just like good that it's kind of it's kind of bad to do research and keep it secret and it's good to do research, like publish it. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't feel this way. I think the things we're building could be very dangerous at some point. And I think that point could come a lot more quickly than anyone is expecting. I think when that point comes, some of the open source stuff we have could be used by bad actors, um, in conjunction with later insights to create very powerful AI systems that, you know, that we aren't thinking of in ways we aren't thinking of right now, but we won't be able to take back later. And in general, I, I do tend to think that academia has kind of like this idea that sharing information is good built into its fundamental ethos. And that might often be true, but I think there's times when it's kind of clearly false and academia still kind of pushes it, you know, gain of function research being like kind of, kind of an example for me, where just like people are very, very into the idea of like making a virus more deadly and publishing how to do it. And I think this is just an example of where just culturally, there's some, some background assumptions about information sharing that I just think the world is more complicated than that. Yeah, I definitely uh, encounter people from time to time who are, they have this very strong prior, this this very strong assumption that everything should be open and people should have access to everything. And then I'm like, what if someone was designing a hydrogen bomb that you could make with, uh, you know, equipment that you could get from your house? I'm just like, I don't think that it should be open. Yeah. I think we should probably stop them from doing that. <laughs> and I think, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly if they figure it out, we shouldn't publish it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I suppose it's just that that's a sufficiently rare case that uh, it's very natural to develop the intuition in favor of openness from the from the ninety nine out of hundred cases where, where where that's not yeah. not too unreasonable. Yeah, I think it's usually reasonable, but I think I think bioweapons is just like a great counterexample, or just like it's not really balanced. It's not really like well for everyone who who you know who tries to design or release some horrible pandemic, we can have someone else using open source information to design a countermeasure. Like that that's not actually how that works. And so yeah, yeah I think this attitude is at least needs to be complicated a little bit more than it is. Yeah. Uh, what's something that listeners might expect you to believe, but which, which, which you actually don't? Yeah, um, I don't really know what people think, I think. But uh, some, some things that I, some vibes I kind of pick up, um, 
I mean, I write a lot about the future. I do a lot about, you know, a lot of stuff about, well, AI is coming. We should, like, prepare and do this and don't do that. I think a lot of people think that I think I have, like, this great ability to predict the future and that I can spell it out in detail and count on it. And I think a lot of people think I'm, like, underestimating the difficulty of predicting anything. And, the, the you know, I think I, I may, in fact, be underestimating it, but I think I, I do feel a lot of gosh, it is so hard to, you know, be even a decade ahead or five years ahead of what's going to happen. It is so hard to get that right in enough detail to be helpful. A lot of times you can get the broad outlines of something, but to really be helpful seems really hard. Even on COVID, it's like, I feel like a lot of the, a lot of the people who saw it coming in advance weren't necessarily able to do much to make things better. And that, that someone includes open philanthropy. And we had a biosecurity program for years before COVID. And I think there was some, some helpfulness that came of it, but not as much as there could have been and so, you know, I think in general, I just like, I don't know, a lot of how I am is I'm just like, putting the future is really hard. Getting out of the ahead of the future is really hard. I'd really like rather never do it. Um, I think in many ways, I would just like rather work on stuff like GiveWell and global health charities and animal welfare and just like adapt to things as they happen and not try and get out ahead of things. And there's just like a small handful of issues that I think are important enough that and, and may move quickly enough that we just we just have to do our best. I think we can I don't think we should feel this is totally hopeless. I think I think we can, in fact, do some good um, by getting out ahead of things and planning in advance. But I think the amount of good we can do is limited. And a lot of my feeling is we got to do the best we can more than, hey, I know what's coming. Yeah. OK. And uh, maybe a final one is uh, what's something you expect quite a lot of listeners might believe, uh, which, which which you think uh, you, you'd be happy to disabuse them of. Yeah, um, there's a line that you've probably heard before that is uh, something like this. It's something like most of the people we can help are in future generations. And there are so many people in future generations that that kind of just ends the conversation about how to do the most good, that it's clearly and astronomically the case that focusing on future generations dominates all ethical considerations or at least dominates all considerations of like how to do the most good with your philanthropy or your career. I kind of think of this as like philosophical long-termism or philosophy first long-termism. That's very, you know, kind of feels like you've ended the argument after you've pointed to the number of people in future generations. And we can get to this a bit later in the interview. Uh, I don't I don't think it's like a garbage view. I, I give some credence to it. I take it somewhat seriously and I think it's like underrated by the world as a whole. Um, but I would I would say that I give a minority of my moral parliament to thinking this way. I would say like more of me than not thinks that's not really the right way to think about doing good. That's not really the right way to think about ethics. And I don't think we can trust these numbers enough to, to feel that it's such a blowout. And the reason that I'm currently focused on what's classically considered long-termist causes, especially AI, is that I believe the risks are imminent and real enough that, you know, even with much less aggressive valuations of the future, they are, you know, competitive or perhaps the best thing to work on. Another random thing, I think, is that if you if you really want to play the game of just like being all about the big numbers and only thinking about the populations that are the biggest that you can help, future generations are just like extremely tiny compared to, uh, you know, persons you might be able to help through a causal interactions with other parts of the multiverse outside our light cone. I don't know if you want to get to that or just refer people back <laughs> to Joe's episode on that, but that's a, that's more of a nitpick on that take. Yeah, people can go back and listen to the episode with Joe Carsmith if, uh, if they'd like to understand uh, what, what we just said there. Let's come back to AI now. I think I, I want to spend quite a lot of time basically understanding what you think different actors should be doing. So, you know, governments, AI labs, you know, our listeners, uh, what, what different ways that they might be able to contribute to, to, to improving our odds here. But maybe before we do that, it might, could be worth talking about like trying to envisage scenarios in which things go uh, relatively, relatively well. You've argued that you're very unsure how things are going to play out, but it's possible that we might 
muddle through and get a reasonably good outcome, even if we basically carry on doing the fairly reckless things, things that, we're, <laughs> that we're doing right now. Not because you're recommending that we take that path, right. but rather just because, because it's, it's relevant to know whether we're just far off, like com- completely far off uh, the possibility of, of any good outcome, given what we're doing now. Yeah. What do you see as the value of laying out positive stories or ways that things might go well? Yeah. So I've written a few pieces that are kind of laying out, here's an excessively specific story about how the future might go that ends happily um, with respect to AI, with that, that ends with kind of, you know, we have AIs that, that didn't develop or did, didn't act on uh, goals of their own enough to disempower humanity. And then we kind of ended up with this world where we're all, the world is getting more capable and getting better over time. And none of the various disasters we're, we're sketching out happened. I've written like three different stories like that. And then one story, uh, the, the opposite, how we could stumble into AI catastrophe where, where things just go really badly. Um, why have I written these stories in general? You know, I think it's it's not that I believe these stories. It's not that I think this is what's going to happen. But I think a lot of times when you're when you're thinking about uh, general principles of like what we should be doing today to reduce risks from AI, it is often helpful, just like my brain works better imagining specifics. And I think it's often helpful to kind of imagine some specifics and then extract back from these specifics two general points and see if you still believe them. So for example, I've, I've actually done, I mean, th- these are the ones I've published, but I've done a lot of thinking of what are different ways the future could go well. And it's like, there are some themes in them. It's like, there's almost, there's almost no story of the future going well that doesn't have like a part that's like, and no evil person steals the AI weights and goes and does evil stuff. And so, you know, it has highlighted, I think, I think the importance of security, the importance of just like information security, just like you're training a powerful AI system, you should make it hard for someone to steal, has like popped out to me as a thing that just like keeps coming up in these stories, keeps being present. It's hard to tell a story where it's not a factor. It's easy to tell a story where it is a factor. You know, another factor that has come up for me is just like, there needs to be some kind of way of stopping or disempowering dangerous AI systems, you can't just build safe ones. Or like if you build the safe ones, you have to somehow use them to help you stop the dangerous ones because eventually people will build dangerous ones. And I think the most promising general framework that I've heard for doing this is this idea of a, of a, of a kind of evals-based regime where you, you test to see if AIs are dangerous. And based on the tests, you kind of have the world coming together to stop them where you don't. And I think even even in a world where you have very powerful, safe AI systems, you still need some kind of, probably, you still need some kind of regulatory framework for how to use those to use force to stop other systems. And so, you know, these are general factors that I think it's it's a little bit like, I think, how some people might do math by imagining a concrete example of a mathematical object, seeing what they notice about it, and then abstracting back from there to the principles. That's what I'm doing with a lot of these stories. I'm just like, can I tell a story specific enough that it's not obviously crazy? And then can I see, like, what themes there are in these stories and like which things I like kind of robustly believe after coming back to reality. That's a general reason for writing stories like that. Um, The specific story you're referring to, I wrote a post on Less Wrong called Success Without Dignity, uh, which is kind of a a response to Elias Yudkowsky writing a piece called, I think it was called Death with Dignity. Yeah, we we should possibly explain that idea. I think Yeah, yeah. So some people have become so pessimistic about our prospects of actually avoiding going extinct, basically, because they think this problem is just so difficult, that they've said, well, really, the best we can do is to not make fools of ourselves in the process of going extinct, that uh, we should at least cause our own extinction in some way that's like barely respectable, if uh, I guess aliens were to read the story or to uncover, yeah, yeah. uncover what we did. So that's, and, and they call this kind of yeah dignity or de- death with dignity. Death with dignity. Sorry, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and to be clear, it's like the, the idea there is not like we're literally just trying to, to have dignity. It's like the idea is like, 
that's an approximate thing you can optimize for that actually increases your odds of success the most or something. Um, yeah, and my, my response- for many people, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, and my, my response, though, is, is a piece called Success Without Dignity that's just kind of like, well, I don't know. Like, it's just, like, actually pretty easy to picture a world where we just, like- we just like do everything wrong and like there's no real positive surprises from here um at least not in terms of like people who are deliberately trying in advance to reduce AIX risk like there's no big breakthroughs on AI alignment there's no like real happy news just a lot of stuff just happens normally and happens on the path it's on and then we're fine and why are we fine well we basically got lucky and I'm like can you tell a story like that and I'm like yeah I think I can tell a story like that and why does that matter and I think it matters because it's um I think a number of people have this feeling with AI that they're just like we're screwed by default. We're going to have to get like 10 really different hard things all right, or we're totally screwed. And so therefore we should be trying like really crazy swing for the fences stuff and forgetting about interventions that like help us a little bit. Um, and yeah, and I have the opposite take. I just think like, look, if nothing, if nothing further happens, there's some chance that we're just fine basically by luck. So we shouldn't be doing like overly crazy things to increase our variance if, if they're not, you know, if they're not like kind of highly positive and expected value. And then I also think like, yeah, things that just like help a little bit. Like, yeah, those are good. Uh, they're good at face value. They're good in the way you'd expect them to be good. They're not like worthless because they're not enough. Um, and so I think, you know, things like just working harder with AI systems to get the reinforcement AI systems are getting to be accurate. So just, you know, this idea of accurate reinforcement where you're not you're not rewarding AI systems specifically for doing bad stuff. Um, you know, that's a thing you can kind of like get more right or get more wrong. And doing more attempts to do that is kind of basic. And it's not, it doesn't involve like clever rethinkings of what cognition means and what alignment means and how we get a perfectly aligned AI. But I think it's a thing that could matter a lot and that putting more effort into could matter a lot. And I feel that way too about improving information security. Like you don't have to make your AI impossible to steal, make it hard to steal is worth a lot. You know, so so there's a lot of just generally a lot of things I think people can do to reduce AI risks that don't rely on a complicated picture. It's just like this thing helps. So just do it because it helps. Yeah, we might go over those interventions in just a second. Yeah. Maybe is it possible to like flesh out the, the story a little bit? Like, yeah, how, how could we how could we get a good outcome? Uh, mostly through luck. Um, so I, I broke the success without dignity uh, idea into a couple phases. So there's the initial alignment problem, which is the, you know, the thing most people I think in the kind of doomer headspace tend to think about, which is how do we, how do we build a very powerful AI system that is not trying to take over the world or disempower humanity or kill all of humanity or whatever. And so there, I think if you are training systems that are human, I call them human level ish. So an AI system that's like got kind of similar range capabilities to a human, it's going to have some strengths and some weaknesses relative to a human. If you're training that kind of system, I think that you may just get systems that are pretty safe, at least for the moment, without a ton of breakthroughs or special work. Um, you might get it by pure luck-ish. So it's basically like this thing I said before about how, you know, you have an AI system and you train it by basically saying good job or bad job when it does something. It's like human human feedback. For a human level-ish system, that could easily result in a system that like either it really did generalize to doing what you meant it to do, or it generalized to this like thing where it's like trying to take over the world, but that means cooperating with you because whenever it's too weak to take over the world. And in fact, these human level-ish systems are gonna be like too weak to take over the world, so they're just gonna cooperate with you. Um it could mean that. So you could get like either two of those generalizations, and then like it does matter if you're like I just said, if your reinforcement is accurate. So 
you could kind of like have an AI system where you say, hey, go make me a bunch of money. And then unbeknownst to you, it goes and like breaks a bunch of laws and hacks into a bunch of stuff and brings you back some money or even like fakes that you have a bunch of money. And then you say, good job. Now you've actually rewarded it for doing bad stuff. But if you can take that out, if you could basically avoid doing that and have your have your kind of like good job be when it actually did a good job, that I think increases the chances that that it's going to generalize to basically just doing doing a good job or at least doing what we roughly intended um, and not kind of pursuing goals of its own, if only because that wouldn't work. And so I think you could, you know, you could do a lot of this is to say you could solve the initial alignment problem by almost pure luck, by this kind of reinforcement learning from human feedback, generalizing well. You could add a little effort on top of that and make it more likely, like getting your reinforcement more accurate. There's some other stuff you could do in, in addition to kind of catch some of the failure modes and straighten them out, um, like red teaming and simple checks and balances. I won't go into the details of that. And if you get some combination of luck and skill here, you end up with AI systems that are roughly human level that are not not immediately dangerous anyway, that are, you know, sometimes I call them jankily aligned. It's like they they are not trying to kill you at this moment. That doesn't mean you solve the alignment problem. Um, but that but at this moment, they are approximately trying to help you. Maybe if they can all coordinate and kill you, they would, but they can't. Remember, they're kind of human-like. So, so that's the initial alignment problem. And then once you get past that, then I think we should all just forget about the idea that we have any idea what's going to happen next. Because yeah. now, now you have... You know, you have a huge, potentially huge number of human level ish AIs, and that is just incredibly world changing. And you know, there's this idea of like that. I think I think sometimes uh, some people call it like getting the AIs to do our alignment homework for us. So it's this idea that once you have human level ish AI systems, you have them kind of working on the alignment problem in huge numbers. And it's like, in some ways, I hate this idea because it's just like very lazy, <laughs> and it just is like, oh yeah, we're not going to solve this problem until later when the world is totally crazy and everything's moving really fast, and like we have no idea what's going to happen. So I hate the well, idea in that we'll, sense. We'll, <laughs> yeah. We'll just ask the agents that we don't trust to yeah, make yeah. themselves trustworthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's a lot to hate about this idea. Um, but heck, it could work. It really yeah. could. Because you could have, you know, you could have a situation where just in a few months, uh, you're able to do the equivalent of like thousands of years um, of humans doing alignment research. And if these systems are just like not at the point where they can or want to uh, screw you up, that really could do it. I mean, we just don't know that like thousands of years of human level-ish alignment research isn't enough to just like get us a real solution. Um, and so that's kind of how how you get through a lot of it. And then you still have another problem in a sense, uh, which is that you, you do need a way to stop dangerous systems. It's not enough to have safe AI systems. But again, you have help from this giant automated workforce. And so in addition to coming up with ways to make your system safe, you can come up with ways of showing that they're dangerous and when they're dangerous and being persuasive about the importance of the danger. And that again, feels like something that like, I don't know, I feel like if we had 100 years before AGI right now, there'd be a good chance that normal flesh and blood humans could pull this off. Um, so in that world, there's a good chance that an automated workforce can cause it to happen pretty quickly. And you could pretty quickly get, you know, get understanding of the risks, agreement that we need to stop them. And you have, you know, more safe AIs than dangerous AIs. And you're trying to stop the dangerous AIs and you're measuring the dangerous AIs or, or, you're, or you're stopping any AI that refuses to be measured or whose, whose developer refuses to measure it. And so then you have a world that's kind of like this one where like, yeah, there's a lot of evil people out there, but there's but they are generally just kept in check by being outnumbered by people who are at least law abiding, if not incredibly angelic. So you, you get a world that looks like this one, but it just has a lot of like AIs running around in it. And so we have like a lot of progress in science and technology. And that's that's a fine ending potentially. OK, so that's that's one flavor of story. Is there any other uh, broad themes in the in the positive stories that it could be worth bringing out before we move on? Mm, I think I'm 
mostly covered it. I mean, the other the other two stories involve less luck and more like you have one or two actors that just do a great job. Like, you know, you have one AI lab that is just ahead of everyone else and it's just like doing everything right. And that improves your odds a ton, you know, for, for a lot of this reason that like being a few months ahead could mean you have like, you know, a lot of a lot of subjective time of having your automated workforce do stuff to be helpful. And so there's one of those with like a really fast takeoff and one of them with a more gradual takeoff. But I think, you know, I think that does that does kind of highlight again that like one really good actor who's like really successful could move the needle a lot, uh, even when you get less luck. So I think there's there's a lot of ways things could go well. There's a lot of ways things could go poorly. I feel like I'm saying just like really silly, obvious stuff now that just should be everyone's starting point. But I, I do think it's not where most people are at right now. I think these risks are extremely serious. Uh, they're kind of my top priority to work on. Uh, I think anyone saying we're definitely going to be fine, I don't know where the heck they're coming from, but anyone saying we're definitely doomed, I don't know, same issue. Okay, so so the key components of the story here was, so so one, you didn't get bad people stealing the models and misusing them really early on. Yeah, uh, or there was some limit to that and they were outnumbered or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and initially we end up training models that are more like human-level intelligence, and it turns out to not be so challenging to uh, have like moderately aligned models like that. And then we also managed to turn those folk, uh, those those AIs, those folks, I guess uh, I'm going to say it, um, <laughs> towards the effort of figuring out how to align yeah. additional models that would be more capable still. And or how to slow things down and put in a regulatory regime that stops things we don't know how to make safe. Yeah. Right. Okay. Or they, or they help with, yeah, they help with a bunch of other AI governance uh, issues, for yeah. example. And then also by the time these models have proliferated and they might be getting used by, uh, you know, irresponsibly or by bad actors, uh, those folks are just massively outnumbered as they are today by, yep. by people who are, who are largely sensible. Okay. So I'm, I'm pretty, I'm really undecided on, on how, how plausible these stories are. I guess I, Play some weight or some some credence on the on the possibility that pessimists like Eliezer Yudkowsky are right, and that this kind of thing couldn't happen for one reason or another. Sure. Uh, and, and I we think really that's possible. Would. Yeah, yeah. I guess in that case, what, what do you make of the argument that let's say we're fifty fifty? I'm uh, sure between kind of the Eliezer worldview and the and the the Holden worldview just outlined that in in, in the case that Eliezer is right, we're kind of just screwed, right? And yeah. things that we do on the margin, a bit of extra work here and there, just isn't going to change the story. Basically, uh, we're just going to go extinct with very high probability. Whereas if you're right, then uh, you know things that we do might actually move the needle, and we have a decent and we have a decent shot. So it makes more sense to act as if <laughs> as if we have a chance, as if some of this stuff might work, because because uh, because our decisions and our actions just aren't super relevant in the in the pessimist case does that sound like a sensible reasoning or uh, i mean it, it seems a little bit suspicious hmm. somehow i think it's a little bit suspicious i mean i think it's fine if it's 50 50 i think uh, eliezer has complained about this he's kind of said you know look if, if you can't like condition on a world that's fake and you should like live in the world you think you're in i think that's right um so i i should say i, I think i do want to say a couple meta things about the success of that dignity story one is just like it i do want people to know this is not like a thing i cooked up like this is you know I think of my job. I'm not. I'm not an AI expert. I think of my job uh, being especially a person who's who's generally been a funder, having access to a lot of people, having to make a lot of people judgments. My job is really to figure out like whom to listen to about what and how much weight to give whom about what. So you know, I'm getting the actual substance here from people like you know Paul Cristiano, Carl Schulman, others. And this is not holding like reasoning things out and being like this is how it's going to be. This is me like synthesizing, hearing from a lot of different people, a lot of them highly technical, a lot of them experts, and just trying to say who's making the most sense, also considering things like track records, like who should be getting weight, th- things like expertise. So that that is an important place to know where I'm coming from. But I do, I do having done that, like I do actually feel that this, the success of that dignity is just like a serious possibility. And I, 
I, I'm way more than 50-50 that this is like, that this is possible. That like, according to the best information we have now, this is a reasonable world to be living in. Is a world where this could happen and we don't know. And way less than 50-50 that the, kind of the LESR model of, yeah, we're doomed for sure with like 98 or 99% probability is right. I don't put zero credence on it, but it's, it's just not my majority view. Um, but the other thing which relates to what you said is um, I don't want to be interpreted as saying this is a reason we should chill out. So I, it, it should be obvious, but my argument should like stress people out way. My picture should stress <laughs> people out like way more than any other possible picture. I think it's like yeah. the most stressful possible picture because it's like anything could happen. Every little bit helps. Like if you help a little more or a little less, like that actually matters in this potentially huge kind of fate of humanity kind of way. And that's, that's a crazy thing to think in its own way. And it's certainly not a relaxing thing to think, but it's, yeah, it's what I think as far as I can tell. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm stressed, Holden. Don't worry. Okay, good. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, so this kind of uh, worldview leads into something that you wrote, which is this kind of four intervention playbook for for possible success with, with AI. And you kind of describe four different categories of interventions that we might uh, engage in in order to to try to improve our odds of success. I think there was alignment research, standards and monitoring, creating a successful and careful AI lab, and finally, information security. I think we've touched on all of these uh, a little bit, but maybe we could uh, go over them again. Is there anything you want to say about alignment uh, research as an intervention category that you haven't said already? Well, I mean, I've I've kind of pointed at it, but I think in, in my head, I see value in I think there's like versions of alignment research that are very like blue sky and very like we have to have a fundamental way of being like really sure that any arbitrarily capable AI is like totally aligned with what we're trying to get it to do. And I think that I think that's very hard work to do. I think a lot of the actual work being done on it is not valuable. But I think if you can move the needle on it, I think it's super valuable. And then there's work that's like a little more prosaic and it's a little more like, well, can we, you know, use our train our AIs with human feedback and find some way that screws up and kind of patch the way it screws up and go to the next step. Um, a lot of this work is like pretty empirical is being done at AI labs. And I think that work is just like super valuable as well. And so that, that is a take I have on alignment research. It's like, I do think almost all alignment research is believed by many people to be totally useless and or harmful. And I, yeah, I tend not to super feel that way. I think if anything, the line I would draw is there is some alignment research that seems like it's, it's necessary eventually to commercialize. And so I'm a little less excited about that because I do think it will get done regardless on, on the way to whatever we're worried about. And so I do tend to draw lines about like, how likely is this research to get done? You know, not by normal commercial motives, but I do think there's a, a wide variety of alignment research that can be helpful. Although I think a, a lot of alignment research also is not helpful, but that but that's more because it's like not aimed at the right problem and less because it isn't like exactly the right thing. And so that, yeah, that's a take on alignment research. Then another another take is I I have kind of uh, highlighted what I call threat assessment research as a thing that you, you could consider part of alignment research or not, but it's it's probably the single category that feels to me like the most in need of more work right now, uh, given given where everyone is, is at. And that would be, you know, basically work trying to, trying to kind of create the problems you're worried about in a controlled environment where you can, um, you can A, just show that they could exist and understand the conditions under which they do exist. So, you know, problems like a misaligned AI that is pretending to be aligned and C, you can actually like study alignment techniques and see if they work on many versions of the problem. So like, you know, you could think of it as like model organisms for AI where, you know, in order to cure cancer, it really helps to be able to give cancer to mice. In order to deal with AI misalignment, it really helps to be able to create, if we could ever create a deceptively aligned agent that is like, you know, secretly trying to kill us, but it's too weak to actually kill us, that would be way better than having the first agent that's secretly trying to kill us be something that actually can kill us. So I'm really into kind of creating creating the problems we're worried about in controlled environments. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the second category was standards and, and monitoring, which which we've already yeah. touched on. Is there anything high level you want to want to say about that one? Yeah, this is this is kind of to me the most nascent or like the one that just it's there's not much happening right now, and I think there could be a lot more happening in the future. But the basic idea of standards and monitoring is this idea of you you have tests for whether AI systems are dangerous, and you have a regulatory or a self-regulatory or a normative, you know, informal framework that says dangerous AI should not be trained at all or deployed. So, and and not be by not be trained, I mean like you found initial signs of danger in one AI model, so you're not going to make a bigger one. Not just you're not going to deploy it, you're not going to train it. Um, I'm excited about standards and monitoring in a bunch of ways. I think. It, it feels like it has to be eventually part of any success story. There has to be some framework for saying, hey, we're going to stop dangerous AI systems. But it also, in the short run, I think it's got more advantages than sometimes people realize, where I think um, it's not just about slowing things down. It's not just about stopping directly dangerous things. I think a good standards and monitoring regime would create massive commercial incentives to actually pass the tests. And so if the tests are good, if the tests are well-designed to actually catch danger where the danger is, you could have massive commercial incentives to actually make your AI system safe and show that they're safe. And I think we'll get much different results out of that world than out of a world where everyone is trying to make and show AI system safety is doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Yeah. Or just for a salary. Yeah. It seems like standards and monitoring is is kind of a new thing on the public discussion, but it seems like people are talking around this issue, or uh, you know, yeah. uh, governments are governments are considering this. That the labs are now publishing papers in this in this vein. Um, to, to what extent do you think you'd need complete coverage for some standards system in order for it to to be effective? I'm just imagining, you know, I guess it seems like OpenAI, DeepMind, Anthropic, they all are currently saying pretty similar things about they're they're quite concerned about extinction risk or they're quite concerned about ways that AI could go wrong. But it seems like the folks at Meta, led by Jan LeCun, kind of have a different attitude. And it seems like it might be quite a heavy lift to get them to voluntarily agree to join the same sorts of standards and monitoring that some of those other labs might be enthusiastic about. And I wonder how much does it, you know, is there a path to getting everyone on board? And if not, uh, would you just end up with, you know, the the most rebellious, the least anxious, the, the least worried lab basically running ahead? Well, I think that latter thing is definitely a risk, but I think it could probably be dealt with. I mean, one one way to deal with it is just to build it into the standards regime and say, hey, you know, you can do these dangerous things, train an AI system or deploy an AI system. You can do them, A, if you can show safety, or B, if you can show that someone else is going to do it, you know. Um, okay. <laughs> you could even say, hey, when, when someone else comes even close, even within an order of magnitude of your dangerous system, now you can deploy your dangerous system. Um, Doesn't that kind of... But but then it seems like the, the craziest people can then kind of just force everyone else or like lead everyone else down the, the garden path. Well, it just I, I, what's the alternative, right? It's just it, like you can you can design the system however you want. I think it's it's like you can either you can say, OK, you have to wait for them to actually catch you, in which case it's hard. It's hard to see how this standard system does harm. It's still kind of a scary world. Yeah. Or you can say you can wait for them to get anywhere close, which now you've got potentially a little bit of acceleration thrown in there. And, and maybe you did or didn't decide that was better than actually just like slowing down all the cautious players. I think it's a real concern. I will say that I don't feel like you have to get universal consensus from the jump for a few reasons. One is it just one step at a time. So I, I think one is it just like if you can start with some of the leading labs being into this, there's a lot of ways that other folks could come on board later. Some of it is just like, you know, peer pressure. Um, yeah, and we've seen with the, the corporate campaigns for farm animal welfare that you've probably covered just like once a few dominoes fall, it gets very hard for others to hold out because they kind of look like way more, you know, way more callous uh, or in the AI system case, way more reckless. Of course, you know, there's also the possibility for regulation down the line. And I think regulation um, 
could be more effective if it's based on something that's already been like implemented in the real world and that's actually working and that's actually detecting dangerous systems. So I don't know. A lot of me is just like one step at a time. A lot of me is just like you see if you can get a system working for anyone uh, that catches dangerous AI systems and, and stops until it can show they're safe. And then you think about how to expand that system. Um, and then a final point is the incentives point where just like, this is not the world I want to be in. And this is not a world I'm that excited about. But in a world where the leading labs are using kind of a standards and evals framework for a few years, and then no one else ever does it. And then eventually we just have to drop it. Well, that's still a few years in which I think you are going to have meaningfully different incentives for those for those leading labs about how they're going to prioritize, um, you know, tests of safety and, and actual safety measures. Yeah. Do you think there's room for a, a big business here, basically, because I would think with, with so many commercial applications of ML models, people are going to want to have them certified that they yep, that exactly. they work properly yeah. and that they don't flip out and do crazy stuff. And in as much as this is going to become a, a boom industry, you'd think that the group that has the greatest expertise in, in like independently vetting and evaluating like how models behave when they're put in a different environment m- might just be able to sell this service for, for a lot of money. Well, there's the independent expertise, but I think in some ways I'm, I'm more interested in the financial incentives for the companies themselves. So, you know, if you look at if you look at like big drug companies, a lot of what they are good at is is the FDA process. A lot of what they're good at is running clinical trials, doing safety studies, proving safety, documenting safety, arguing safety and efficacy. You know, you could argue about whether there's like too much caution at the FDA. I think in the case of COVID, there may have been some yeah. of that. But um, yeah. but certainly it's a regime where where there's big companies that a major priority, maybe at this point a higher priority for them than innovation, is actually measuring and demonstrating safety and efficacy. And so you could imagine landing in that kind of world with AI. And I think that would just, yeah, that would be a very different world from the one we're going to go into by default. And I, I do think that that's not just about, you know, the FDA is not the one making money here, but it's it's changing the way that the big companies think about making money, certainly redirecting a lot of their efforts into demonstrating safety and efficacy as opposed to coming up with new kinds of drugs, both of which have some value. But I think I think we're a bit out of balance on the AI side right now. Yeah. Yeah, it is funny. I um, For so many years, I've been just infuriated by the FDA. And I feel like, yeah. you know, these these people, they only consider downside. They only consider risk. They they, they don't think about upside nearly enough. Yeah. And now I'm like, can we get some of that insanity over here, please, in this area? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. There was a very funny Scott Alexander piece kind of making fun of this idea. But I mean, I think it's legit. It's just, it's just honestly, it's it's just kind of a boring opinion to have. But I think that I think that innovation is good and I think safety is good. And I think we have a lot we have a lot of parts of the economy that are just way overdoing the safety. It's just like you can't you can't give a haircut without a license and you can't like build an in-law unit in your house without like a three-year process of forms and you know, open philanthropy works on a lot of this stuff. We were the first institutional funder of the IMBI movement, uh, which is this movement to make it easier to build houses. Um, I think we overdo that stuff all the time, and I think the FDA sometimes overdoes that stuff in a horrible way. And I think during COVID you know, I do believe that, that things moved way too slow. And then I think with AI, we're just not doing anything. There's just no yeah. framework like this in place at all. So I don't know. How about a middle ground? Yeah. If only we could get the same level of review for these potentially incredibly dangerous self-replicating AI models that right, we have for right. building a block of apartments. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. In some ways, I feel like this incredible paranoia and this incredible focus on safety, if there's one place it would make sense, that would be AI. I honestly, weirdly, I'm not saying that we need to get AI all the way to being as cautious as like regulating housing or drugs. Maybe it should be less cautious than that. Maybe. Uh, But right now it's just nowhere. And so I think, you know, I think you could think of it as like there's FDA and zoning energy and then there's like AI energy and like 
Yeah, maybe housing should be more like AI. Maybe AI should be more like housing. But I, I definitely feel like we need more caution in AI. That's what I think. More caution than we have. And that's not me saying that we need to need to forever be in a regime where safety is the only thing that people care about. Yeah. You've, you've spoken a bunch with the folks at ARC Evaluations. I think ARC stands for, was it AI Research Center? Alignment Research Center. Alignment Research Center, yeah. And they have an evaluations project. But yeah, could you maybe give us, a, give us a summary of the project that they're engaged in and the reasoning behind it? I have spent some time as an advisor to Archivels. Uh, that's a group that is, uh, you know, headed by Paul Cristiano. Beth Barnes is uh, leading the team. And they work on basically trying to find ways to assess whether AI systems could pose risks, whether they could be dangerous. And uh, they also have thought about whether they want to experiment with like putting out kind of proto standards and proto expectations of, hey, if your model is dangerous in this way, here are the things you have to do to contain it and make it safe. That's a group where I've, I felt that there's a lot of intellectual firepower there to design evaluations of AI systems and where I'm, you know, hopefully able to add a little bit of just like staying on track and um, and helping run and build an organization because it's it's all quite new. Um, but they were the ones who, who they did an evaluation on uh, GPT-4 for whether it could kind of create copies of itself in the wild. And they kind of concluded, uh, no, as far as they were able to tell, although they weren't able to do yet all the all the research they wanted to do, especially they weren't able to do a fine-tuning version of their evaluation. Okay, so while we're on safety and evaluations, as I understand it, this is kind of something that you've been thinking about in, in particular the, the last couple of months. Maybe what, what new things have you learned about this part of the, of the playbook over the, over the last six months? Yeah, the, the evaluations and standards and monitoring. I mean, one, one thing that just has become clear to me is there's just, um, it is really hard to design uh, evaluations and standards here. And there's just a lot of like hairy details around things like, you know, auditor access. So if you, you know, there's this kind of idea that you would have an AI lab, have an outside independent auditor determine whether their models have dangerous capabilities. But it's a fuzzy question. Does the model have dangerous capabilities? Because it's going to be sensitive to a lot of things like how do you prompt the model? How do you interact with the model? Like, what are the things that can happen to it that cause it to actually demonstrate these dangerous capabilities? If someone builds a new tool for GPT-4 to use, is that going to cause it to become more dangerous? In order to investigate this, you have to actually be like good at working with the model and understanding what its limitations are. And a lot of times just like the AI labs not only know a lot more about their models, but they have like a bunch of features that like it's hard to share all the features at once. They have a bunch of different versions of the model. And so it's quite hard to make outside auditing work for that reason. Also, if you're thinking about standards, you're thinking about, you know, a, a general a general kind of theme in a in a draft standard might be once your AI has shown initial signs that it's able to do something dangerous, such as autonomous replication, which means that it can basically, uh, you know, make a lot of copies of itself without help and without necessarily getting detected and shut down. There's an idea that like once you've kind of shown the initial signs that a system can do that, that's a time to not build a bigger system. And that's a cool idea, but it's like how much bigger and it's like hard to define that because making systems better is multi-dimensional and can involve more efficient algorithms, can involve, again, better tools, longer contexts, just like different ways of fine-tuning the models, different ways of specializing them, different ways of like setting them up, prompting them, like different instructions to give them. Um, and so it can be like just very fuzzy, just like what is this model capable of is a hard thing to know. And then how do we know when we've built a model that's more powerful that we need to retest? These are very hard things to know. And I think it has has kind of moved me toward feeling like we're not ready for a really prescriptive standard that tells you exactly what practice is to do like the farm animal welfare standards are. We might need to start by asking companies to just outline their own proposals for what tests they're running, when and how they feel confident that they'll know when it's become too dangerous to keep scaling. 
Yeah. So some some things that'll be really useful to be able to evaluate is, you know, is this model capable of autonomous self-replication by breaking into additional servers? I guess you might also want to test, you know, could it be used by terrorists for, you know, uh, yeah. figuring out how to produce bioweapons? Those, those are kind of very natural ones. The and breaking think- into servers is not really central. So the idea is like, could it okay. could it make a bunch of copies of itself in the presence of like minimal or like kind of non-existent human attempts to stop it and shut it down? So it's like, could it take basic precautions to not get like obviously detected as an AI by people who are not particularly looking for it. And the thing is, if, if it's able to do that, you could have a human have it do that on purpose. So it doesn't necessarily have to break into stuff. It can like, you know, a lot of the test here is like, can it find a way to make money, make the money, open an account with a server company, put, you know, rent server space, make copies of itself on the server. None of that necessarily involves any breaking in anywhere. I see. So so hacking is one way to get compute, but it's by no means the only one. So it's not that's a necessary, right. not a necessary. Factor. That's right. Okay. You yeah. could be, I mean, it's weird, but you could be an AI system that's just kind of doing normal phishing scams that you read about on the internet, using those to get money or just legitimate work. You could be an AI system that's just like going on MTurk and being an MTurker and making money, use that money to legitimately read some servers or sort of legitimately because it's not actually allowed if you're not a human, but, you know, um, apparently legitimately rent some server space. Um, install yourself again, have that money make more money and and, and that copy make more money. And then you have, you know, you can have quite a bit of of, of replication without doing anything too fancy, really. And that's what the initial autonomous replication test that Archivels does is about. Okay. So we'd really like to be able to know whether models are capable of doing that. And I suppose that it seems like they're not capable now, but, you know, know, a couple of years time. Probably not. Again, there's there's things that you could do that, that might that might make a big difference that have not been tried yet by Archivels, and that's on the menu. Fine-tuning is the big one. So fine-tuning is like you have a model and you do some additional training that's like not very expensive, but is trying to just like get it good at particular tasks. So you can take the tasks it's bad at right now, train it to do those. That hasn't really been tried that tried yet yeah and it's like a human might do that like if if you have these models accessible to anyone or someone can steal them, a human might take a model, train it to be more kind of powerful and effective and not make so many mistakes. And then this thing might be able to autonomously replicate. That could be scary for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. Okay. And then there's the uh, trying to not release models that could be used by terrorists and things like that. The, the autonomous replication is something that could be used by terrorists. Is, okay. is, yeah. You know what I mean? It's overlapping. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like if, if you're a terrorist, you might say, hey, let's have a model that makes copies of itself that make money to, to make more copies of itself that make money. Well, you make a lot of money that way. And then you could have a terrorist yeah. organization make a lot of money that way or using its models to do a lot of like little things that, you know, schlepping along, like trying to trying to plan out some incredibly – you know, some some plan that takes a lot of work to kill a lot of people. Um, mm. That that is part of the concern about autonomous replication. It's not purely an alignment concern. Yeah. Okay. I guess the thing I was pointing to there was just giving advice to people that we really would rather that they not be able to receive. Yeah. Uh, is yeah. maybe another category. Like helping to set up a bioweapon. Yeah. Would be exactly. a very bad yeah. thing. An AI model that could do that, even if it couldn't autonomously replicate, that could be quite dangerous. Yeah. Still, be not ideal. Yeah. And then maybe a, another category is trying to produce these model organisms. That, so where you can study behavior that you don't want an AI model to be engaging in and like understand how it arises in the training process and, and you know what sort of further feedback mechanisms might be able to train that out. Like if we could produce a model that will trick you whenever it thinks it can get away with it, but doesn't when I think it's going to get caught. Now, that would be really helpful. Yeah. Are, are there any other broad categories of standards and, and eval work that, that you're excited by? So the way the way I would carve up the space is there's like um, there's capability evals. And that's like, is this AI kind of capable enough to do something scary? Forgetting about whether it wants to. And I think capability evals are like, you know, could an AI, if a human tried to get it to do it, could an AI make a bunch of copies of itself? Could an AI design a bioweapon? Those are capability evals. Then there's like alignment evals. That's like, 
does this AI actually do what it's supposed to do or does it have like some weird goals of its own? Um, so the stuff you talked about with model organisms would be like more of an alignment eval, the way you described it. Mm. Um, and the autonomous replication is a capability eval. I think a very important subcategory of capability evals is what I call meta capability evals, meta dangerous capabilities, which is basically any ability an AI system has that would make it very hard to get confident about what other abilities it has. So the, you know, an example would be um, what I'm currently tentatively calling unauthorized proliferation. So an AI model that can walk a human through building a powerful AI model of their own that is not subject to whatever restrictions and controls the original one is subject to. Right. That could be a very dangerous capability that, like, you could say, well, our AI can design a bioweapon, but we, but it always refuses to do so. But it can also help a human build an AI that we don't know what the hell that thing can do. Um, so that would be an example. Uh, autonomous replication is a meta capability eval. It's like, well, we tried to see if our AI could design a bioweapon. It couldn't. But we, what we didn't test is if it goes and makes 10,000 copies of itself while working together. Well, maybe then it could really do different things that we didn't know it could do. Um, there's actually kind of a lot of these meta evals. Like there's also sandbagging. Sandbagging would be like an AI that understands you're evaluating it and is pretending it can't do something. So that would be another rough one is like if an AI has that capability, then it looks like it can't build a bioweapon, but actually can. I could list a bunch more of those. And then I could list a bunch more of the direct dangerous ones that are like bioweapon, hacking, persuasion, um, just like dangerous stuff it could do. And I think where I'm most concerned is like, AIs that are kind of like have some basic amount of the direct danger and then they have some meta danger that just like we've completely lost our ability to measure it and we don't know what's actually going to happen when this thing gets out in the world. That's what I think starts to count as a dangerous AI model. Yeah. Fortunately, I don't really think that that any of the AI models out there today trip this danger wire, but that's that's only my belief. That's not something I know for sure. It seems like there's an enormous amount of work to do on this. Yeah. Is, is there any way that people can get started on this without necessarily having to be hired by an organization that, that's that's focusing on it? Like, does, does it help to build, like, really enormous familiarity with the models like GPT-4? Yeah, you could definitely play with GPT-4 or Claude and just see what scary stuff you can get it to do. Um, if you really want to be into this stuff, I think you're going to be at an org because these are very, it's like, it's going to be very different work depending on if you're working with the most capable model or not, right? You're trying to figure out how capable the model is. So doing this on a little toy model is not going to tell you much compared to doing this on the biggest model. This is this is a perfect example of the kind of work where just it's going to be much easier to be good at this work if you're able to work with the biggest models a lot and able to work with all the infrastructure for making the most of those models. So being in a lab or at some organization like Archivals that has like access to these big models um, and access beyond what a normal user would have, they can do more requests, they can try more things. I think it's a huge advantage. If, if you want to start exploring, sure, start red teaming GPT-4 or Claude, see what you can get it to do. But um, yeah, this this is the kind of job where you, you probably want to join a team. Yeah. I know that there's an active community online that tries to develop jailbreaks. So, so yeah, yeah. there's a case where it's like, you know, uh, they've trained GPT-4 to not instruct you on how to make a bioweapon. But then if you say yeah. you're in a play where you're a scientist yeah, making yeah. a bioweapon, who also, and it's like a very realistic play, so they describe exactly what they do, then, I mean, I, I don't think that exactly works yet uh, or works anymore. But yeah. there's like many, many jailbreaks like this that apparently are just very broadly effective at escaping the RLHF that they've used to try to dis- discourage uh, models from saying particular things. Yeah. So I guess that, I guess that, is that kind of another class of evals trying trying to figure out ways of breaking like you've identified the thing you wanted to do and you've tried to patch it but maybe not completely i kind of tend to think of that as a as a early alignment eval that's like 
these systems aren't supposed to do this. Like the designers didn't want them to do this, but now a human can get them to do it. So that's like not what we meant. And we didn't really align it as well as we could have. That's how I tend to think of it. Um, so it's, it's, it's a distinction between like, is this system capable enough to do dangerous stuff if a human wanted it to? And that's capability. And then there's like, does this system do what humans want it to? Or does it like behave in unexpected ways? And it's like, well, these jailbreaking ones, they're doing what the users wanted them to, but not what the designers wanted them to. AIs that are not doing what the designers wanted them to, and in fact doing specific things the designers tried really kind of hard not to get them to do, I'd call that an alignment issue. Yeah. I guess a skeptic of this entire enterprise might say that, you know, all of this evals work in practice, you know, when, it, when people are actually doing it on models before they deploy them or something like that. It's going, it's going to pick up, uh, you know, bad behavior by kind of stupid models <laughs> that are easily instructed to do things that we don't want them to do and, and just kind of naively follow instructions. But if you ever had an AI that was aware of its situation and was incredibly cunning and was intending to turn against you once it had the opportunity, it's not going to be fooled by any of this stuff. So in fact, it might just give you a false sense of security that you've gotten a good grip on where things might go wrong when in fact, uh, all you've done is basically... <laughs> select and train for the model that's best at avoiding your evals. Uh, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, this is what I was calling the sandbagging capability. It's like one of these meta dangerous capabilities. It's like the, the model that's kind of, you know, pretending that it can't do something when in fact it can. You know, my guess is that you can have a model that has dangerous capabilities, but does not have that one, does not have the sandbagging capability. And so you can start to see the danger but you don't yet have models that are smart enough to, to be able to like reliably hide from you. My guess is we are, in fact, just going to do that. That is actually going to happen. We're going to have a point in time when AIs are able to do something with bioweapons or something with autonomous replication. They're able to say, oh, yeah, this thing is scary as heck, and it's not yet smart enough to sandbag because it doesn't have to be smart enough to do that reliably in order to be dangerous in other ways. Hopefully, at that point, the burden of proof flips, and we say, you know, now we really need to figure out what the heck is going on in sandbagging, how we would even test for it. But even there, I'm, I'm optimistic you can test for sandbagging capabilities. There's a bunch of ideas for how you might do so. Some of them are kind of fancy, like kind of doing digital neuroscience, reading the AI's brain, sometimes called mechanistic interpretability. But I think there's there's other ideas that are less fancy than that. It's just like you could you could use gradually bigger and bigger models and and see how they perform on these evaluations. And there's you know see if you get a kink, um, yeah. like a, like a change in direction when like they became smart enough to start faking you out because it's going to be really hard for you know models getting more and more capable to like fake this perfect progression without a kink. That seems like a little wild. There's like these ideas for honeypot evals where you kind of. You, you give you give an AI a, a genuine opportunity to take over a contained virtual environment and get a lot of whatever the heck it wants um, by kind of revealing its hand. And that might actually be a better deal for it than, than holding out. And that's something I've written about in a bit more detail. So I, I don't know. I, I think this is okay. I should say more, more broadly, I think there's like, we haven't gone into it. And, and if you're going to cover this more on another podcast, that's fine. But there's there's many objections you might have to the idea of trying to develop dangerous capability evals and trying to develop standards around them to detect and stop dangerous AI systems. I think it's a, a really important idea. It's pretty hard for me to imagine a world where we're fine that doesn't have some version of this. The version might come really late and be designed by super powerful AIs. Um, seems better to start designing it now. But there's plenty of downsides too. It could slow down the cautious actors. The attempts to see if AIs could be dangerous could themselves make the AIs more dangerous. Uh, there's, there's objections. So, you know, and, and I'm aware of that. Yeah, what do you think is the is the best objection? I think a lot of objections are like pretty good. We're going to see where it goes. Okay. <laughs> um, I think this is just going to slow down the cautious actors while the incautious ones race forward. Like 
I think there's ways to deal with this and I think it's worth it on balance. But yeah, I mean, it, it worries me. Yeah, well, it seems like once you have sensible evaluations that that clearly would pick up things that you know you wouldn't want them to have like it, it can help someone design a bioweapon then yeah can't we turn to the legislative process or some regulatory process to say sorry everyone like this is a really common very basic evaluation that you would need on any consumer product so we like you, everyone just has yeah. to do it soz totally i mean i i think that's right and and my long-term run hopes do involve legislation and i think the better evidence we get the better demonstrations we get the more that's on the table you know, if I were to steal man this concern, I'd just be like, don't count on legislation ever. Don't count on it to be well-designed. Don't count on it to be fast. Don't count on it to be soon. I will <laughs> say, I think right now there's like probably more excitement in the EA community about legislation than I have. I think I'm I'm pessimistic. I'm I'm short. The, the people are saying, oh, yeah, yeah, look at look at all the, you know, the government's paying attention to this. They're going to do something. I, I think I take the other side in the short run. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, the the third category in the playbook was having a successful and careful AI lab. Yeah, do you, do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, first with the reminder that I'm married to uh, the president of Anthropic. So, you know, take take that for what it's worth. Um, I mean, I just think there's there's a lot of ways that if you had an AI company that was on the frontier, that was succeeding, that was building some of the world's biggest models, that was pulling in a lot of money, and that was simultaneously able to, you know, really be prioritizing risks to humanity, um, it's not too hard to think of a lot of ways good could come of that. I mean, some of them are very straightforward. The company could be making a lot of money, raising a lot of capital and using that to support a lot of safety research on frontier models. So you could think of it as like a weird kind of earning to give or something. You know, also probably that AI company would be like pretty influential in discussions of how, you know, how AI should be regulated and how people should be thinking of AI. They could be a legitimizer, all that stuff. I think it'd be a good place for people to go and just like skill up, learn more about AI, um, become more important players. So I think in the short run, they'd have a lot of just like expertise in-house that they could like work on a lot of problems, like probably to design ways of measuring whether an AI system is dangerous. Uh, one of the first places you'd want to go for people who'd be good at that would be a top AI lab that's building some of the most powerful models. So I think there's a lot of ways they could do good in the short run. And then, you know, I have written stories that just have in the in the long run. It's just like when we get these really powerful systems, it just like actually does matter a lot uh, who has them first and what they're using them, literally using them for. It's like when you have very powerful AIs is the first thing you're using them for trying to figure out how to make future systems safe or trying to figure out how to assess the threats of future systems or is the first thing you're using them for just like trying to rush forward as fast as you can, do faster algorithms, do more, you know, more bigger systems, or is the first thing you're using them for just some random economic thing that is kind of cool and makes a lot of money. Some customer facing thing. Yeah. yeah, but and it's not it's not bad, but it's not reducing the risks we care about. So, you know, I think there is a lot of good that can be done there. And then there's also a lot, I want to be really clear, a lot of harm an AI company could do. Just, I mean, you know, if you're if you're pushing out these systems. Kill um, everyone. Well, that kind of thing. Yeah, for example. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you're pushing out these AI systems. And, and, and if you're if you're doing it all with an eye toward profit and moving fast and winning, then, you know, I mean, you could think of it as like you taking the slot of someone who could have been using that expertise and money and, and juice to, to be doing a lot of good things. And you could also just be thinking of it as like, you're just giving everyone less time to figure out what the hell is going on and we already might not have enough. So I, I want to just be really clear, like, this is a tough one. I, I don't want to be interpreted as saying, you know, one of the tent poles of reducing AI risk is to like go start an AI lab immediately. Like, I don't believe that. <laughs> but I but I also think like, I also think that some corners of the AI safety world are very dismissive or just think that like AI companies are bad by default. And I'm just like, this is just like really complicated. And 
it really depends exactly how the AI lab is prioritizing kind of risk to society versus success. And it has to prioritize success some to be relevant or to get some of these benefits. Um, so how it's balancing is just like really hard and really complicated and really hard to tell. And you're going to have to have some judgments about it. So it's not a ringing endorsement, but, um, but it does feel, at least in theory, like part of one of the main ways that we make things better. You know, it's, it's, it, you could do a lot of good. Yeah, I guess so. A challenging thing here, and actually applying this principle, I I think I agree, and I imagine most listeners would agree that you know, if it was the case that the AI company that was kind of leading the pack in terms of performance was also incredibly focused on using those resources in order to solve alignment and and generally figure out how to how to make things go well rather than just deploying things immediately uh, as soon as they can turn a buck, uh, that that would be better. But then it seems like, at least among all of the three main companies that people talk about at the moment, uh, DeepMind, uh, OpenAI, a- Anthropic, there are people who want each of those companies to be in the lead, but they can't all be in the lead uh, at, at once. And it's kind of not clear which one you should go and work at if you want to c- try to implement this principle. And then it, when people go and try to make all three of them the leader because they can't agree on which one it is, then you just end up speeding things up without necessarily giving the safer one an, an advantage. Am I thinking about this wrong or is this just the reality right now? No, I think it's I think it's like a genuinely really tough situation. Like I, I, I when when I'm like talking to people who are thinking about joining an AI lab, like I don't like this is this is a tough call and people need to like have nuanced views and like do their own homework and like you know, I think this stuff is complex, but I do think this is like a valid theory of change. And I don't think it's like automatically wiped out by the fact that some people disagree with each other. I mean, it could it could be the case that just actually all three of these labs are just like better than some of the alternatives. That could be a thing. Um, it could also be the case that just like, I don't know, like, let's say you have a world where um, where people disagree, but there's some correlation between uh, what's true and what people think. So let's say you have a world where you have, you know, 60% of the people going to one lab, 30% to another, 10% to another. Well, you could be like throwing up your hands and saying, ah, people disagree. But like, I don't know, this is still like probably a good thing that's happening. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think it's like the whole thing. I, I just want to say the whole the whole thing is is complex. And I don't I don't want to sit here and say, hey, go to Lab X on this podcast uh, because I don't think it's that simple. And I yeah. think you have to do your own homework and have your own views. And you certainly shouldn't trust me if I give that recommendation anyway because of my conflict of interest. But I think we shouldn't sleep on the fact that there is – if you're the person who can do that homework, who can have that view, who can be confident in that view or confident enough, I think there is like a lot of good to be done there. So we shouldn't just be like carving this out as a, as a thing that's just like always bad when you do it or something. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it would be really useful for someone to start maintaining, I guess, a scorecard or a spreadsheet of all of the different pros and cons of the different labs. Like, what what safety practices are they implementing now? You know, do, do they have good institutional feedback loops to to catch things that might be going wrong? Do have they given the right people the right incentives and things like that? Uh, because at the moment, I imagine it's somewhat difficult for someone deciding where to work. They probably are relying quite a lot on just word of mouth. Yeah. Uh, but but potentially there, there could be more more objective indicators that people could rely on, and that could also create kind of a race to the top. Where yeah. Especially people are more likely to go and work at the labs that, that have the have the better indicators. Okay. And the fourth part of the playbook was uh, information security. And I guess yeah, we've been trying to get information security folks from AI Labs on the on, on the show to talk about this, but understandably, there's only so much that they want to want to divulge about the details of their work. Right? Why is information security potentially so so key here? Yeah. Um. I mean, I think you can you can build these like powerful, dangerous AI systems, and you can do a lot to try to mitigate the dangers, like limiting the ways they can be used. You can do various alignment techniques, but if uh, if some state or someone else 
steals the weights, they've basically stolen your AI system and they can run it without even having to do the training run. So you might, you know, you might spend a huge amount of money on a training run, end up with this AI system that's very powerful and someone else just has it. And they can then also fine tune it, which means they can do their own training on it and kind of change the way it's operating. So whatever you did to train it to be nice, they can train that right out. Uh, the training they do could screw up whatever you did to try and make it align. And so it's, it's I think if, at the at the limit of like, it's really just trivial for any state to just grab your AI system and do whatever they want with it and retrain it how they want. It's really hard to imagine feeling really good about our, <laughs> about that situation. <laughs> I don't know if I really need to elaborate a lot more yeah, on yeah. that. And so yeah. making it making it harder seems valuable. I also this is another thing where I, I want to say as as I have with everything else that it's not a binary. So um, it could be the case that like after you improve your security a lot. It's still possible for a state actor to steal your system, but they have to take more risks. They have to spend more money. They have to take a deeper breath before they do it. It takes them more months. Months can be a very big deal. As I've been saying, uh, when you get these very powerful systems, you could do a lot in a few months. By the time they steal it, you could have a better system. And so I don't think it's an all or nothing thing, but I think it's it's a core it's, it's no matter what risk of AI you're worried about. You could be worried about the misalignment. You could be worried about the um, the misuse and, and the use to develop dangerous weapons. You could be worried about more esoteric stuff, like how the AI does decision theory. You could be worried about, you know, mind crime. But, like, you don't want just kind of like anyone, including uh, some of these state actors North who Korea, may have very yeah. bad values, yeah, to just be able to steal a system, retrain it how they want, and use it how they want. You want some kind of setup where it's like, the people with good values <laughs> controlling more of the more powerful AI systems, using them to enforce some sort of law and order in the world and, and enforcing law and order generally with or without AI. So it seems quite, quite robustly important. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think other things about security is just like, I think it's very, very hard, like just very hard to make these systems hard to steal for a state actor. And so I think there's just like a, I don't know, like I think there's a ton of room to go and make things better. There could be security research on innovative new methods and there can also just be like, a lot of blocking and tackling, just getting companies to do things that we already know need to be done, but that are really hard to do in practice, take a lot of work, take a lot of iteration, you know, and also a nice thing about security as opposed to some of these other things it is a relatively mature field. So you can learn about security in some other context and then apply it to AI. So, you know, part of me kind of thinks that the the EA community or whatever kind of screwed up by not emphasizing security more. I kind of, it's not too hard for me to imagine a world where we've just been screaming about the the AI security problem for the last 10 years and how do you stop a very powerful system from getting stolen? That problem is extremely hard. Uh, we'd made a bunch of progress on it. There were tons of tons of people concerned about this stuff on the security teams of all the top AI companies and we were kind of not as active and only had a few people working on alignment. I'm just like, I don't know, is that world better or worse than this one? I'm not really sure. Uh, a world where we were kind of more balanced and had encouraged people who were a good fit for one to go into one uh, probably seems just like better. Probably seems just like better than the world we're in. So yeah, yeah. I think security is a really big deal. I think it hasn't hasn't gotten enough attention. Yeah, I put this to Bruce Schneier, who's a very well-known academic or commentator in this area many years ago, and he, and he seemed kind of kind of skeptical back then. Uh, I wonder whether he's changed his mind. We also talked about this with with, with Nova Das Summer a couple of years ago, uh, who uh, she, she works at Anthropic on trying to secure models uh, among, among other things. I, I think I think we even talked about this one with Christine Peterson back in 2017. It is yeah, it's a, it's a shame that more people haven't gone into it because it does just seem like it's such an outstanding. It's like even setting all of this aside, it seems like going into information security, computer security is a really outstanding career it's the kind of thing that i would yeah, yeah. would have loved to do in, a, in an alternative life because it's uh kind of tractable and also yeah uh, ex exciting uh like, yeah re really important things you can do it's very, very well paid as well yeah i think the demand is crazily out ahead of the supply and security which is another reason i wish more people had gone into it and uh, you know 
when Open Phil was looking for a security hire, it was just it was I, I've never seen such a hiring nightmare in my life. I think I, I asked one security professional, you know, hey, will you keep an eye out for people we might be able to hire? And this person just like actually laughed um, <laughs> wow. and said, like, what the heck? Like everyone asked me that. Like, of course, there's no one for you to hire. All the good people have amazing jobs yeah. where they barely have to do any work and they get paid a huge amount and they have exciting jobs. Like, no, like I'm absolutely never going to come across someone who would be good for you to hire. But yeah, I'll let you know. Ha <laughs> ha Like that was like a conversation I had. Like that was kind of representative of our experience. Like it's it's crazy. And I would love to be on the other side of that. It's just like a human being. I would love to have the kind of skills that were in that kind of demand. Uh, so yeah, it's too bad more people aren't into it. It's, it seems like a good career. Go do it. Yeah. So I'm basically totally on board with this line of argument. I guess if I had to push back, I'd say maybe we're just so far away from being able to secure these models that you could put in an enormous amount of effort, maybe like the greatest computer security effort that's ever been put towards any project. And maybe you would end up with it costing a billion dollars in order to steal the model. But that's still peanuts to China or to state actors. And this is obviously going to be on their radar by the relevant time. So maybe really the message we should be pushing is because we can't secure the models, we just have to not train them. And that's the that's the only option here. Or perhaps you just need to move the entire training process inside the NSA building <laughs> and basically just co-opt an, an existing, like whoever has the best security, you just basically <laughs> take that and then use that as the shell for the training setup. I don't think I understand either of these alternatives. I think we, we can come back to the billion dollar point because I don't agree with that either. Okay. But let's start with this. Like the only safe thing is not to train. I'm just like, how the heck would that make sense? Unless we get everyone in the world to agree with that forever. That doesn't seem like much of a plan. So what, I don't understand that one. I don't understand move inside the NSA building because I'm like, if it's possible for the NSA to be secure, then it's probably possible for a company to be secure with a lot of effort. Like, I don't, yeah, it's like neither of these is making sense to me as an alternative. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because they're, they're, they're two different arguments. So the NSA one, I suppose, would be saying it's going to be so hard to convert a tech company into being sufficiently secure that basically we just need to get the best people in the business wherever they are working working on this problem, and basically we'd have to like redesign it from the from the ground up. Well, that might be what we have to do. I yeah. mean, a, a good step toward that would be for a lot of great people to be working in security to determine that that's what has to happen. To be working at companies, to be doing the best they can, and say this is what we have to do. But let's let's try and be as adaptable as we can. I mean, it's like zero chance that the company would just literally become the NSA they would they would figure out what the NSA is doing that they're not they would do that and they would they would make the adaptations they have to make that would take an enormous amount of intelligence and creativity and and person power and the more security people there are the better they would do it so I, yeah I don't I don't know that that one is really an alternative <laughs> um okay so and what about the argument that when we're not going to be able to get it to be secure enough so it might even just give us like false comfort to be increasing the cost of stealing the model when when it's still just going to be sufficiently cheap i don't think it'll be false comfort i mean i think if you have if you have a zillion great security people and they're all like fyi this thing is not safe i think we're probably going to feel less secure uh, than we do now when we just, when we just i think have a lot of confusion and fud about exactly how hard it is to protect a model so i don't i don't know like i kind of like what's the alternative but but putting yeah. aside putting aside what's the alternative I would just disagree with this thing that it's a billion dollars and it's peanuts. I would just say, look, at the point at the point where it's really hard, anything that's really hard, it, it, there's an opportunity for people to screw it up. Sometimes it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And and they might not be able to pull it off. They might just like, you know, screw it up a bunch of times. And that might give us enough months to, to have a, enough of an edge that it doesn't matter. Um, I think another, another point in all this is like, if we get to a future world where you have a really good standards and monitoring regime, one of the things you're monitoring for could be could be security breaches. So you could be saying, you know, hey, we're using AI systems to enforce some sort of regulatory regime that says you can't train a dangerous system. Well, not only can't you train a dangerous system, you can't steal any system. If we catch you, there's going to be consequences for that. And those consequences could be arbitrarily large. And it's one thing to say a state actor can steal your AI. It's another thing to say they can steal your AI without a risk of getting caught. These are different security levels. 
So I guess there's a hypothetical world in which no matter what your security is, a state actor can easily steal it in a week without getting caught. But I doubt we're in, I actually doubt we're in that world. I think you make it harder than that. And I think that's worth it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've knocked it out of the park in terms of failing to uh, to to, <laughs> to disprove this uh, this argument that I agree with. So please, people, go and go and learn more about this. We, we've we've got <laughs> an fun. information we've got an information security career review. This posts up on uh, the effective altruism forum called EA Infosec Skill Up or Make a Transition to Infosec via this book club, uh, which you could go check out. There's also the EA Infosec uh, Facebook group. So uh, quite a lot of resources. As uh, hopefully, finally, people are waking up to, to this as a as a really uh, really impactful career. And I guess if you, if you know any people who work in information security maybe you get to have a conversation with them or uh if you don't maybe have a child and then train them up in information security (laughs) and in 30 years they'll be able to help out hey listeners and possible bad faith critics just to be clear i am not advocating having children in order to solve talent bottlenecks in information security that was a joke designed to highlight the difficulty of finding people to fill senior information security roles okay back to the show there's a, this is a lot of different jobs, by the way. There's security researchers, there's security engineers, there's security, you know, DevOps people and managers, and just this is a big thing. We've oversimplified it, and I'm not an expert at all. It is kind of weird that this is an existing industry that many different organizations acquire, and yet it's going to be such a struggle to bring in enough people to secure yeah, yeah. what is probably a couple of gigabytes worth of data. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's whack, right? It is. Well, this is this is the biggest objection I hear to, to pushing security is everyone will say, look, like. Alignment is a weird thing. We need weird people to figure out how to do it. Security is just like, what the heck? Why don't the AI companies just hire the best people that already exist? There's a zillion of them. And my response to that is basically like, it's security hiring is a nightmare. You can talk to anyone who's actually tried to do it. There may come a point at which AI is such a big deal that AI companies are actually just able to hire all the people who are the best at security and they're doing it and they're actually prioritizing it. But I think that point is not even now, not even now with all the hype and we're not even close to it. And I think it's in the future. And I think that you can't just hire a great security team overnight and have great security overnight. It like actually matters that you're thinking about the problems like years in advance and that you're like building your culture and your practices and your operations years in advance. And because it's just it, it, security is not a thing. You could just come in and bolt onto an existing company and then you're secure. And I think anyone who's worked in security will tell you this. So having great security people in place, making your company more secure and figuring out ways to secure things well, well, well in advance of when you're actually going to need the security is definitely where you want to be if you can. And I think having people who care about these issues work on this topic does seem like really valuable for that. Also means that the more these positions are in demand, the more they're going to be in positions where they, they have an opportunity to have an influence and have credibility. Yeah. Yeah. I think the idea that surely it would be possible to hire for this from the mainstream might have been a not unreasonable expectation 10 or 15 years ago. But the thing is, we're, like, we're already here. We can see yeah. that it's not true. I don't know why it's not true, yeah. but definitely uh, people people really can move the needle by, by one outstanding individual in this area. Yeah. So the, the four things, so alignment research slash the threat assessment research, standards and monitoring, which is like a lot of different potential jobs that I kind of outlined at the beginning, that many of which are jobs that kind of don't exist yet, but could in the future. Then there's successful, careful AI lab. There's security. I would say a couple things about them. One is I I have said this before. I don't think any of them are binary. So I think these are all things, and I, and I have a draft post that I'll put up at some point arguing this. These are all things where like a little more improves our odds in a little way. Um, it's not some kind of weird function where it's useless until you get it perfect. I believe that about all four. Another thing I'll say, I, I tend to focus on alignment risk because it is probably the single thing I'm most focused on and because I know this audience will be into it. But I do want to say again, I don't think that AI takeover is like the only thing we ought to be worried about here. And I think the four things I've talked about are highly relevant to other risks as well. So I think, you know, all, all the things I've said are, are really 
Our, I think our really major concerns, if you think AI systems can be dangerous in pretty much any way, threat assessment, figuring out whether they can be dangerous, what they can do in the wrong hands, you know, standards and monitoring, like making sure that you're that you're clamping down on the ones that are dangerous for whatever reason. Dangerous could include because like they have feelings and we might mistreat them. That's a form of danger you could think. Hmm. Successful, carefully AI lab and security, I think are pretty clear there too. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're actually going to maybe end up talking more about misuse uh, as an area than the misalignment uh, going forward, just because I think that is like maybe more upon us or like will be upon us very soon. So there's a high degree of urgency. Possibly. I guess also as a, as a non-ML scientist, I think I have a better grip on the maybe the, the misuse issues. And, and it might also be somewhat more tractable for a wider range of people to try to contribute to, to reducing uh, misuse. Interesting. Okay, so you have a post uh, as well on what AI labs could be doing differently. But I know that one has kind of already been superseded in your mind and uh, you're going to be working on that question uh, more more intensely in coming months. So so we're going to skip that one for today uh, and come back to it in another interview down the line uh, when, when the time is right, uh, maybe possibly later this year even. So instead, let's push on and talk about governments. Um, you had a short post about this a couple of months ago called How Major Governments Can Help with the Most Important Century. I think you wrote that your views on this are even more tentative than they, than they are elsewhere. Of course, there's a lot of policy attention to this just now. Um, but, but back in February, it sounded like your main recommendation was actually just not to strongly commit to any particular regulatory framework or, 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 or any particular set of rules because things, they're, they're just changing so quickly. And it does seem sometimes like governments, once they do something, they can find it quite hard to to stop doing it. Uh, and once they do something, then uh, they maybe move on and forget that what they're, what they're doing actually needs to be constantly updated. So is that still your high-level recommendation that, that people should be studying this, but not trying to write the bill on, on AI regulation? Yeah, there's some, um, there's some policies that I'm excited about more than I was previously, but I think at the high level, that is still my take. It's just that Companies could just do something and they could just like do something else. Um, and there's certain things that are hard for companies to, to change, but there's other things that are easy for them to change. Like governments, it's just like you got to spin up a new agency. You got to have all these directives. It's just going to be hard to turn around. Um, so I think that's right. I think, I think governments should default, default to doing things that they, that they really have, have been run to ground that they really feel good about. Um, and not just be like, you know, starting up new agencies left and right. That does seem right. Yeah. Okay, but you know, what if someone who's senior in the White House came to you and said, "Sorry, Holden, we uh, the, the eye of Sauron has turned to this issue in a good way. We want to do something now. Uh, what, what would you feel reasonably good about governments tr- trying to take on now?" Yeah, um, I have been like talking with a lot of the folks who work on AI policy recommendations and have been just like thinking about that and trying to get a sense for what the most you know, what the ideas that the people who think about this the most are most supporting are, um, you know, an idea that I that I like quite a bit is uh, requiring licenses for large training runs. So basically, if you're going to do like a really huge training run of an AI system, you know, I think that's that's the kind of thing that government can be aware of and, and should be aware of. And it, it becomes somewhat analogous to like developing a drug or something where it's like it's a very expensive time-consuming training process to create one of these state-of-the-art AI systems. And it's a very high-stakes thing to be doing. And so we don't know exactly what a company should have to do yet because we don't yet have great evals and tests for whether AI systems are dangerous. But at a minimum, you could say, let's, you need a license. So you need to, at a minimum, you need to say, hey, yeah, we're, we're doing this. We've told you we're doing it. I don't know, like, 
you you know whether any of us have criminal records, whatever, and now we've got a license. And then that creates a potentially flexible regime where you can later say, in order to keep your license, you're going to have to you know measure your systems to see if they're dangerous, and you're going to have to show us that they're not, and all that stuff, without committing to exactly how that works now. So I think that's exciting idea, probably. Uh, I, I don't feel totally confident about any of this stuff, but that's probably number one. Yeah. For me, I think the other number one for me would be some of the stuff that's just like already ongoing like existing AI policies that I think people have already pushed forward and are trying to just kind of like tighten up. So some of the stuff about export controls would be my other top thing. You know, I think if if you were to throw in a requirement with the license, I would make it about information security. So I think government requiring at least minimum security requirements of anyone training frontier models just seems like a good idea. Just like getting them on that ramp to where it's not so easy for a state actor to steal it. Arguably, government should just require all AI models to be treated as top secret classified information, which means that they would have to be subject to incredible draconian security requirements involving, you know, just like air gap networks and all this incredibly painful stuff. Arguably, they should require that at this point, given how little we know about what these models are going to be imminently capable of. But at a minimum, some kind of security requirements seems good. I think another another couple ideas, just tracking where all the large models are in the world, where all the hardware is possible, uh, capable of being used for those models. I think don't necessarily want to do anything with that yet, but having the ability uh, seems possibly good. And then I think there are like interesting questions about like liability and about incident tracking and reporting that I think just could use some clarification. I don't think I have the answer on them right now, but it's just like when should an AI company be liable for harm that was caused partly by one of its models? Um, what should an AI company's responsibilities be when there is a bad incident of being able to say what happened? How does that trade off against the privacy of the user? I think these are things that, I don't know, feel feel really juicy to me to like consider 10 options, figure out which ones are best from a containing the biggest risks point of view and push that. But I don't really know what that is yet. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, broadly speaking, we don't know exactly what the rules should be in the details and we don't know exactly where we want to end up, but we want to across a bunch of different dimensions, put in place the beginning of the infrastructure that yeah. will probably regardless help us go, go in the direction that we're, that we're going to need to move gradually. Exactly. And I'm not in favor, like, I think there's other things governments could do that are more like giving themselves kind of arbitrary powers to like seize or use AI models. And I'm not, I'm not really in favor of that. Uh, I think that could be destabilizing and could cause chaos in a lot of ways. So a lot of this is about like, yeah, basically feeling like we're hopefully heading toward a regime of testing whether AI models are dangerous and stopping them if they are and having the infrastructure in place to basically make that be able to work. Um, So it's not a generic thing. The government should give itself all the option value, but it should be setting up for that kind of thing to basically work. Yeah. As I understand it, you know, if the National Security Council in the US concluded that, you know, a model that was about to be trained would be a massive national security hazard and, you know, (laughs) might lead to human extinction, people aren't completely sure, like, which agency or who uh, has the legitimate legal authority to prevent that from going ahead. Or if anyone does. Yeah. No one's sure if anyone has that authority. Yeah. Right. It seems like that's something that should be patched at least, you know, even if you're not, uh, you know, creating the ability to seize all of the equipment and so on with the intention of using it anytime soon, maybe it should be clear that there's some authority that is meant to be monitoring this and and like should, should take action if they conclude that something's a massive threat to the country. Yeah, possibly. I think I'm most excited about like what I what I think of is like promising regulatory frameworks that could create good incentives and could help us kind of every year um, and a little bit less about the the tripwire for the D-Day. I, I think a lot of times with AI, I'm like, I'm not sure there's going to be like one really clear D-Day or by the time it comes, it might be too late. Um, so I am I am thinking about things that could just like put us on a better path day by day. Yeah. Okay, uh, pushing on to people who have an audience, like 
people who are active on social media or journalists or uh, I guess podcasters, heaven, heaven forfend. Um, you, you wrote this article, Spreading Messages to Help with the Most Important Century, which was, which was targeted uh, at this group. I guess back in ancient times in February, when, when you wrote this, yeah. this piece, uh, you were kind of saying that you thought people should tread carefully in this area and should definitely be trying not to build up hype about uh, AI, especially just about its like raw capabilities, because that could encourage further investment in capabilities. Well, you were saying mo- most people, when they hear that AI could be really important, they rather than falling into this caution, concern, risk management framework, they start thinking about it purely in a competitive sense, thinking our business has to be at the forefront, our country has to be at the forefront. And I think <laughs> indeed that, that has been an awful lot of people people thinking thinking that way uh, recently but yeah do you still think that people should be very cautious talking about how powerful ai might be given that maybe the horse has already uh, left the barn on that one i think it's a lot less true than it was i mean i think it's less likely that you hyping up ai is going to do much about ai hype you know i think it's it's still not a total non-issue and especially if we're just taking the premise that you're some kind of communicator and people are going to listen to you You know, I still think the same principle basically applies that, like, the thing you don't want to do is you don't want to, like, emphasize the incredible power of AI if you feel like you're not at the same time getting much across about how AI could be a danger to everyone at once. Um, Because I think if you do that, you are going to, the default reaction is going to be, I got to get in on this. And a lot of people already think they got to get in on AI, but not everyone thinks that. Not everyone is going into AI right now. So if you're talking to someone who you think you're going to have an unusual impact on, you know, I think that basic rule, yeah, that basic rule still seems right. And it makes it really tricky to communicate about AI. Um, You know, I think there's a lot more audiences now where you just feel like, these people have already figured out what a big deal this is. I need to help them understand some of the details of how it's a big deal and especially, you know, some of the threats of misalignment risk and stuff like that. And I mean, yeah, that, that kind of communication is a little bit less complicated in that way, although challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have any specific advice for what, what messages seem most valuable or like ways that people can, can frame this in a particularly productive way? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote a post on this that you mentioned, spreading messages to help with the most important century you know, I think I think some of the things that people have trouble, a lot of people have trouble understanding or don't seem to understand or maybe maybe just disagree with me on. And, and I would love to just see that the dialogue get better um, is this idea that, you know, AI could be dangerous to everyone at once. It's not just about whoever gets it wins. You know, that the kind of Terminator scenario, I think, is is actually just like pretty real. And the way that I would probably put it at a high level is just like there's only one kind of mind right now. There's only one kind of species or thing that can develop its own science technology. That's humans. Uh, We might be about to have two instead of one. That would be the first time in history we had two. Like, the idea that we're going to stay in control, I think, should just not not be something we're too confident in. Um, I think that that would be at a high level, and then at a low level, you know, and, and I would say with humans, too, it's like, you know, humans kind of fell out of this trial and error process, and for whatever reason, we had our own agenda that wasn't good for all the other species. Now we're building AIs by a trial and error process. Are they going to have their own agenda? I don't know. But if they're capable of all the things humans are, it doesn't feel that crazy. And then I would say it feels like even less crazy when you look at the details of how people build AI systems today. And you imagine extrapolating that out to very powerful systems. It's like really easy to see how we could be training these things to kind of have goals and optimize like the way you would optimize to win a chess game. Um, We're not building these systems that are just these kind of like very well understood, well characterized reporters of facts about the world we're building these systems that are like these very opaque trained with kind of like sticks and carrots and 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 they may in fact have kind of what what you might think of as goals or aims and that's something i wrote about in detail so i think yeah i think trying to communicate about about why we could expect these kind of terminator scenarios 
to be serious or versions of them to be serious, how that works mechanistically, and also just like the high-level intuitions seems like a really good message that I think could be a corrective to some of the racing and, and help people realize that we may, in some sense, on some dimensions, and sometimes all be in this together, and that may call for different kinds of interventions from if it was just a race. Um, I think like some of the things that are hard about measuring AI danger, I think are really good for like the whole world to be aware of. I'm really worried about a world in which we're just like, when you're dealing with it, with it beings that have some sort of intelligence, measurement is hard. So it's like, let's say you run a government and you're worried about a coup. Uh, are you going to be empirical and go poll everyone on whether they're plotting a coup? <laughs> and then it turns out that 0% of people are plotting a coup, so there's no coup. Wow, like, great. Yeah. yeah, that's not how that works. And, uh, you know, that, that might work. Uh, that, that kind of empirical method works with things that are not thinking about what you're trying to learn and how that's going to affect your behavior. And so I think, again, you know, with AI systems, it's like, okay, we, we gave this thing a test to see if it would kill us and it looks like it wouldn't kill us. Like, how reliable is that? There's a whole bunch of reasons that we might not actually be totally set at that point um, and that these measurements could be really hard. And I think this is, like, really, really key because I think wiping out, like, enough of the risk to make something commercializable is one thing and wiping out enough of the risk that we're actually still fine after these AIs are all over the economy um, and could kind of disempower humanity if they chose is another thing not thinking that commercialization is going to take care of it, not thinking that we're able to just going to be able to easily measure as we go. I think these are really important things for people to understand could really affect the way that all this plays out, the way, you know, whether whether we do reasonable things to prevent the risks. Um, I don't know. I think those are the big ones. I have more, I have more in my post. You know, gen general concept that just like there's a lot coming. It could happen really fast. And so the normal the normal human way of just like reacting to stuff as it comes may not work, I think is is an important message. Important message, if true. If wrong, I would love people to spread that message so that it becomes more prominent, so that more people make better arguments against it. And then I change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know whether this is good advice, but a strategy you could take is trying to find aspects of this issue that are not fully understood yet by people who have a kind of only only engaged with it quite recently. Like exactly this issue that the measurement of safety could be incredibly difficult. It's not just a matter of doing the really obvious stuff like asking the model, uh, are you out to kill me? Uh, and, tr and trying to come up with, with some pithy example or story or terminology that can really capture people's imagination and stick in their mind. Like, and, and I think exactly that example of the coup where you're saying, what you're doing is just going around to your generals and asking them if they want to overthrow you. And then they say no. And you're like, well, uh, everything is hunky-dory. I think that, that is the kind of thing that could get people to understand at a deeper level <laughs> why, why we're in a difficult, difficult situation. I think that's right. And I'm, uh, I'm very mediocre with metaphors. I bet some listeners are better with them. They do a better job. Yeah. Uh, Katja Grace came up with a, well, I, I, she wrote one in a Time article yesterday that I hadn't heard before, which is saying, we're not in a, in a race to the finish line. Rather, we're, we're a whole lot of people on, on uh, a lake that has frozen over, but the th ice is incredibly thin. And if mm. any of us start running, then yeah. we're all just going to fall through because it's going to yeah, crack. Yeah, and I was like, yes, that's a, that's a, that's a great visual, visualization of it. Yeah, interesting. Okay, uh, let's push on. We talked about AI labs, governments, and advocates, but the, the final grouping is the largest one, uh, which is just jobs and careers, which is, <laughs> of course, what 80,000 hours is typically meant to, meant to be about. Um, yeah, what's another way that some listeners might be able to help with this general issue uh, by you know, changing the career that they go into or the, the skills that they develop? Yeah, so I, I wrote a post on this called Jobs That Can Help With The Most Important Century. I think the first thing I want to say is I just do expect this stuff to be quite dynamic. So right now, I think we're in a very nascent phase of kind of evals and standards. I think we could be in a future world where there are decent tests of whether AI systems are dangerous and there are decent frameworks for how to how to keep them safe. But there needs to be just like more work on like 
advocacy and communication so that people actually understand this stuff, take it seriously, and that and that there is a reason for for companies to to do this. And also, um, you know, there could be people working on political advocacy to have good regulatory frameworks for keeping humanity safe. So I think I think the jobs that exist are going to change a lot. And I think my big thing about careers in general is just like. If you're not finding a great fit with one of the current things, that's fine. And like, don't force it. And, uh, you know, if you have person A and person B and person A is like they're doing something that's not clearly relevant to AI or whatever. Let's say they're, you know, let's say they're an accountant. They're really good at it. They're, you know, they're thriving. They're picking up skills. They're making connections. Um, and they're they're ready to go work on AI as soon as an opportunity comes up, which that last part could be hard to do uh, on a personal level. Then you have person B who is you know, kind of like they had a similar profile, but they forced themselves to go into alignment research and they're like doing quite mediocre alignment research. So they're like barely keeping their job. Uh, you know, I would say person A is just like the higher, the higher expected impact. And I think that that would be my main thing on jobs is I'm just like, you know, do, do something where you're, you're good at it. You're thriving, you're leveling up, you're picking up skills, you're picking up connections. Uh, if that thing can be on a key AI priority, that is ideal. If it cannot be, that's okay, uh, and don't force it. So that that is my, my high level thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I'm happy to talk about specifically what what I see as some of the the things people could do today, right now on AI that don't require starting your own org and are more like you can slot into an existing team if you have the skills and if you have the fit. I'm happy to go into that. Yeah, I think uh, people who want more uh, advice on overall career strategy, uh, we did an episode with you on that back in 2021, um, which is episode 110, Holden Karnofsky on building aptitudes and kicking ass. Uh, so I can, I can definitely recommend going back and, and, and listening to that. But yeah, maybe uh, in terms of like more, yeah, more, more specific roles, are there any ones that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I mean, some of them are obvious. So I think, uh, you know, there's people working on AI alignment. There's also people working on threat assessment, uh, which we've talked about and uh, dangerous capability evaluations uh, at AI labs or sometimes at nonprofits. And, you know, if there's a fit there, I think that's just like an obviously great thing to be working on. Um, we've talked about information security. Uh, so, I, yeah, I don't think we need to say more about that. I think there is this like really tough question of whether you should go to an AI company and just kind of like do things there that are not particularly safety or policy or security, uh, just like helping the company succeed. You know, that can be a really, in my opinion, really great way to skill up a really great way to like you personally becoming a person who knows a lot about AI, understands AI, swims in the water and is well positioned to do something else later. Um, there's big upsides and big downsides to helping an AI company succeed at what it's doing. And it really comes down to how you feel about the company. So it's a tricky one, but it's one that I think is, is definitely worth thinking about, thinking about carefully. Then there's, you know, there's roles in government and there's roles in government facing think tanks, um, just trying to trying to help. And I think that the interest is growing. So trying to help the government make good decisions, including not making rash moves about how it's, you know, how it's dealing with AI policy, uh, what it's regulating, what it's not regulating, et cetera. So those are, those are some things. Um, yeah, I had a few other listed in my, in my post, but I think it's okay to stop there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it seems like both of these paths. So, so, so one broadly was speaking was going and working in the AI labs or in, you know, a near, nearby industries or, or firms that they collaborate with. And I guess there's a whole lot of different ways you could have impact there. And I suppose the other one is thinking about governance and policy, um, where you could just you could pursue any kind of government uh, and, and policy career, try to flourish as as much as you can, and then turn your attention towards AI later That's on, right. because because there's sure to be an enormous demand for more analysis yeah, and yeah. work on this in, right. in coming years. So hopefully, in both cases, you'll be joining uh, very rapidly growing uh, industries. And for the latter, the closer the better. So if working on technology policy is probably best, but yeah. 
What about people who kind of they don't see any immediate opportunity to enter into either of those broad streams? Is there anything that you think that they could do in the meantime? Yeah, so I, I did before talk about the kind of person who could, you know, just be good at something and kind of wait for something to come up later. I guess the I guess it might be worth emphasizing that the ability to switch careers is going to get harder and harder as you get further and further into your career. So I think in some ways, like, you know, if you're a person who's being successful, but is also like making sure that you've got the financial resources, the social resources, the psychological resources that you really you really feel confident that as soon as a good opportunity comes up to do a lot of good, you're going to switch actually switch jobs or have a lot of time to serve on a board or whatever. I think it's weird because this is like a not a measurable thing and it's not a thing you can like brag about when you go to an effective altruism meetup. It just seems like incredibly valuable. And I just I, I wish there was a way to just kind of to kind of recognize that, you know, the person who is successfully able to walk when they need to from a successful career has, in my mind, like more more expected impact than the person who's in the high impact career right now, but is not killing it. Yeah. So so I expect an enormous growth in roles that might be relevant to, the, to this problem in, in future years, and also just an increasing number of types of roles that might be relevant, because there could just be all kinds of new projects that are going to grow yeah. and will require people who are just generally competent, you know, who have management experience, who know how to deal with operations and legal and so on. So and they're going to be looking for people who, who, who share their values. So if you're able to potentially move to one of the hubs <laughs> and take one of those roles when it becomes available, uh, if it does, then uh, that's, that's definitely a big step up relative to, to locking yourself into something else <laughs> where, you, where you can't shift i I was gonna say also just like spreading messages we talked about but um i have a feeling that being a person who's a good communicator a good advocate a good persuader i I have a feeling that's going to become more and more relevant and there's going to be more and more jobs like that over time because i think we're in a place now where people are like just starting to figure out what a good regulatory regime might look like what a good set of practices might look like for containing the danger and later i think there'll be more more maturity there and more stress placed on and people need to actually understand this and care about it and do it yeah i mean setting yourself the challenge of taking someone who is not informed about this or might even be skeptical about this and with arguments that are actually sound as far as you know persuading them to care about it for the right reasons and to understand it deeply that is not simple Uh, and, and if you're able to build the skill of doing that through through practice it would be unsurprising if that turned out to be to be very useful in some role in future. And I should be clear, there's a zillion versions of that that have like dramatically different skill sets. So there's like people who, you know, their thing is they work in government and there's some kind of government subculture that they're very good at communicating with and government ease. And then there's people who like make viral videos. Then there's people who like organize grassroots protests. And there, it's just, there's a, there's a, so many, there's journalists, there's highbrow journalists, lowbrow journalists. It's just like, communication is not a generalizable skill it's it's there's an audience and there's a gazillion audiences and there are people who are terrible with some audiences and amazing with other ones so this this is many many jobs and i think there'll be more and more over time yeah okay we're we're just about to wrap up this this ai section i guess i had two two questions from the the audience to to run by you first yeah one audience member asked what if anything should open philanthropy have done two to five years ago to to put us in a better position to deal with with ai now Is, is there anything anything that we missed yeah, I mean, in terms of actual stuff, we literally kind of missed. I mean, I I feel like this whole this whole idea of like evals and standards is like everyone's talking about it now. But I mean, heck, it would have been much better if everyone was talking about it five years ago. Uh, that would have been great. I think in some ways, in some ways, this research was kind of too hard to do before the models got pretty good. But there might have been some some start on it. Um, at least at least with understanding how it works in other industries and starting to learn lessons there. Security, obviously, I have regrets about just like not. You know, there were some attempts uh, to push it uh, from ADK and from OpenFill, but I think those attempts could have been a lot more, a lot louder, a lot more forceful. Um, mm. I think it's possible that security being the top hotness in EA rather than alignment, like, 
it's not clear to me which one of the, those would be better. And, and having the two be equal, I think probably would have been better. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, there's there's lots of stuff where just like I kind of wish we just like paid more attention to all of this stuff faster. But those are the most specific things that are easy for me to point to. Yeah. What do you think of the argument that we should expect a lot of alignment, like useful alignment research to get done ultimately because it's necessary in order to make the products useful? Uh, I think Pushmik Kohli made this made this argument on the on the show many years ago, and I've, I've definitely definitely heard it recently as well. Yeah. I think it could be right. I think in some ways it, it feels like it's almost definitely right to like an extent or something. It's just like there's certain like AI systems that just don't at all behave how you want are just like going to be too hard to commercialize. And AI systems that are constantly causing random damage and getting you in legal trouble. I mean, like that's not going to be a profitable business. So I, th- I do think a lot of a lot of the work that needs to get done is going to get done by normal commercial incentives. Um, I'm very uncomfortable having that be the whole plan. Um <laughs> One of the things I am very worried about, again, if you're really thinking of AI systems as capable of doing what humans can do, is that you could have situations where you're kind of, you're training AI systems to be well-behaved, but what you're really training them to do is to be well-behaved unless they can get away with bad behavior in like a permanent way. And just like a lot of humans, it's like they behave themselves because they're part of a law and order situation. And if they ever found themselves able to, you know, gain a lot of power or break the rules and get away with it, they totally would. A lot of humans are like that. You could have AIs that you're basically trained to be like that. And so it, it reminds me a little bit of like some of the financial crisis stuff where it's just like you could be you could be doing things that like drive your day-to-day risks down but kind of concentrate all your risk in these like highly correlated tail events. And so I think – I don't think it's guaranteed, but I think it's quite worrying that we could be in a world where – in order to get your AIs to be commercially valuable, you have to get them to behave themselves, but you're only getting them to behave themselves up to the point where they can definitely get away with it. They're actually like kind of like capable enough to be able to tell the difference between those two things. And so I, I don't want our whole plan to be commercial incentives. We'll take care of this. And if anything, I tend to be focused on the parts of the problem that seem less likely to get naturally addressed that way. Yeah, another analogy uh, there is to the to the forest fires, where as, as I understand it, because people don't like forest fires, we basically prevent forests from ever having fires but then that causes more brush to 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 build up and then every every so often you have some enormous cataclysmic fire that you just can't put out because the amount of the amount of combustible material there is extraordinarily high like more than you ever would have had naturally before humans started putting out these fires i guess that that's one way in fact that trying to prevent like small scale bad outcomes or trying to prevent like a minor misbehavior by models could give you a false sense of security because you'd be like well we haven't had a haven't had a forest fire in so long yeah uh but then of course all you're you're doing is like causing something much worse to happen later because you've been lulled into complacency yeah and i'm not i'm not that concerned about false sense of security i think we should like try and make things good and and then argue about whether they're actually good so you know i think we should try and get AI models to behave and after we've done everything we can to do that we should ask if we really got them to behave and what might we be missing so I don't I don't think we shouldn't care if they're if they're being nice, but I think it's not the end of the conversation. Yeah, another uh, audience member asked, how should people who've been thinking about and working on AI safety for for many years react to all of these ideas suddenly becoming becoming much more popular in the in the mainstream than than they ever were? I don't know. I mean, like uh brag about how everyone else is a poser. I mean, um <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure what the don't, question don't, I mean, don't, it, yeah. don't, don't encourage me, Holden. <laughs> Um, yeah, what's what, like? How, how should they react? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I is there is there more of a sharpening? Like, I think we should still care about these issues. I think yeah. that people who are who are who were not interested in them before and are interested in them now, we should be like really happy and we should welcome them in and see if we can work productively with them. Uh, what what else is the question? 
Yes. <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, it reminded me of the point you made in a, in, a, in a previous conversation we had where you said, you know, lots of people kind of including us who are uh, a bit ahead of the curve on COVID. Yeah. You know, we were kind of expecting this sort of thing to happen. And then we saw that it was going to happen weeks or months before anyone else did. And that didn't really help. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Like, no, that's like, We didn't manage to do yeah. anything. We didn't, yeah. And I'm not, like, I'm worried with this. Uh, it's like on one level, I feel kind of smug that I feel like I was ahead of the curve on noticing this problem but I'm also like and we didn't manage to fix it did we, we didn't manage to oh, convince people so I guess it. you know yeah. there's, there's both a degree of smugness and we got to like eat <laughs> humble pie at the same time I think it's I mean I think in some ways I feel better about this one I think I think like I do feel like the early concern about AI was like productive like we'll see um but I I generally feel like there is you know the the public dialogue is probably different from what it would have been if there wasn't like a big you know, set of people talking about these risks and trying to understand them and and help each other understand them. Um, I think there's different people working in the field. Like we don't have a field that's just like 100 percent made of people whose like entire goal in life is making money. That seems good. Um, there's you know, there's people in government who care about this stuff there's, who, who are very knowledgeable about it, who aren't just like coming at it from the beginning, who understand some of the big risks. So, you know, I think um, I think good has been done. I think the situation has been made better. I think that's debatable. I don't think it's totally clear. I'm not feeling like nothing was accomplished. But yeah, I think you're totally I mean, I'm with you that like, being right ahead of time, that is not, <laughs> it's not enough. It's not my goal in life. It is not effective altruism's goal in life. You could be wrong ahead of time, be really helpful. You'd be right ahead of time, be really useless. So yeah, I would definitely say like, let's, let's focus pragmatically on solving this problem. All these people who weren't interested before and are now Let's be really happy that they're interested now and figure out how we can all work together to reduce AI risk. And, yeah. you know, let's notice how the winds are shifting and how we can adapt. Yeah. Okay, uh, let, let's wrap up this uh, AI section. We've, we've been talking about this for a couple of hours, but interestingly, I yeah. feel like we've barely scratched the surface on any yeah. of these different different topics. We've, it's actually, we've been keeping up a blistering pace in order to not, <laughs> not keep you uh, for your entire workday. Um I guess it is just interesting how many different aspects there, there, there are out of this problem and how hard it is to get a grip on on all of them. And uh, I think one thing you said before we started recording is just that your views on this are evolving very quickly. And yeah. so I think probably we need to come back and have another conversation about this in six or 12 months. And uh, I'm sure you have like more ideas and maybe we can go into detail on some specific ones. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think if I if I were to kind of like wrap up where I, where I see the AI situation right now, I think there's, there's definitely more interest. People are taking risks more seriously. People are taking AI more seriously. Um, I don't think like, anything is like totally solved or anything, even in terms of public attention, you know, alignment research has, has been really important for a long time, remains really important. And I think it's like, there's more interesting avenues of it that are getting somewhat mature than there used to be. There's more jobs in there. There's more to do. Um, I think the evals and standards stuff is newer and I'm excited about it. And I think in a year, there may be like a lot more to do there, like a lot, a lot. I think another thing that, you know, that I have been kind of updating on a bit is I, there is some amount of convergence between different concerns about AI, and we should lean into that while not getting too comfortable with it. So I think, you know, we're at a stage right now where the main argument that today's AI systems are not too dangerous is that they just can't do anything that bad, even if humans try to get them to. When that changes, I think we should be more worried about misaligned systems, and we should be more worried about aligned systems that bad people have access to. I think for a while those concerns are going to be quite similar and people who are concerned about aligned systems and misaligned systems are going to have a lot in common. I don't think that's going to be true forever. So I think in a world where there's pretty good balance of power and lots of different humans have AIs and they're kind of keeping each other in check, I think you would worry at that point less about misuse and more about alignment because because misaligned AIs could end up all on one side uh, against humans or like mostly on one side or, or, or just fighting each other in a way where we're collateral damage. So um. You know, I think I think right now a lot of what I'm thinking about in AI is pretty convergent. It's just like 
how can we build a regime where we detect danger, which just means anything that AI could do that feels like it could be really bad for any reason and stop it? And I think at some point it'll get harder to make some of these trade-offs. Okay. To be continued. Let's push on to something completely different, which is this article that you've been working on where you lay out your reservations about, well, I think in one version you call it hardcore utilitarianism and another one you call it uh, impartial expected welfare maximization. I think maybe maybe for the purposes of, uh, I guess the acronym is I-E-W-M in the article, yeah. but I think for, uh, for the purposes of uh, an audio version, we, we, let's just call this hardcore utilitarianism. To give some context to tee you up here a little, yeah, this is a topic that we've discussed with Joe Carlsmith in episode 152, uh, Joe Carlsmith on navigating serious philosophical confusion. And we also actually touched on it at the end of episode 147 with Spencer Greenberg. Basically, over the years, you found yourself talking to people who are much more all in on some sort of utilitarianism uh, than you are. Uh, and I think from reading the article, uh, the draft, I think the conclusions they draw that bother you the most are that open philanthropy or that perhaps the effective altruism community should only have been making grants to improve the long-term future and maybe only making grants related or only doing any work related to artificial intelligence rather than diversifying and and hedging hedging all of our bets across a range of different worldviews and splitting our time and resources between catastrophic risk reduction as well as helping present generation of people and you know also uh, helping uh, non-human animals uh, among among other different uh, plausible worldviews. And also uh, maybe the conclusion that some people draw that they should act uncooperatively with other people who have different values when, whenever they think that they can, they can get away with it. Yeah, do you want to clarify uh, any, any more the attitudes that, that, that you're reacting to here? Yeah, um, I mean, one piece of clarification is just like the, the, piece, the articles you're talking about. One of them is like a 2017 or 2018 Google Doc that I probably will just never turn into a public piece. And another is a, a dialogue I started writing that I do theoretically intend to publish someday, but it might never happen. It might be a very long time. Um, yeah, I don't know. The story The story I would tell is like, I, you know, I co-founded GiveWell. I've always been, I've always been interested in doing the most good possible in kind of a hand wavy, rough, like way, one way of talking about what I mean by doing the most good possible is like, there's a kind of apples to apples principle that says, when I'm choosing between two things that really seem like they're pretty apples to apples, uh, pretty similar, I want to do the one that helps more people more. When I feel like I'm able to really make the comparison, I want to do the thing that helps more people more. Um, that is a different principle from a more all-encompassing, like, and everything can be converted into apples, and all interventions are on the same footing, and there's one thing that I should be working on that is the best thing, and, like, there is an answer to whether it's better to, like, increase the odds that many people will ever get to exist versus like reducing malaria in Africa versus like helping chickens on factory farms. And I've, I've always been like a little less sold on that second way of thinking. So there's the, there's the, you know, the more apples principle that like, I want more apples when it's all apples. And then there's the, like, it's all one fruit principle or something. These are really good names that I, that I'm coming up with on the spot <laughs> that I'm sure will stand the test of time. You know, I got into this world and I met other people interested in similar topics. A lot of them are, you know, identify as effective altruists. And I encountered these, you know, ideas that are that were more hardcore and were more saying, look, like, I think the story I would basically tell would be something like there is like one correct way of thinking about what it means to do good or to be ethical. That comes down to basically utilitarianism. This can basically be. A, seen by looking in your heart and seeing that subjective experience is all that matters and that everything else is just heuristics for optimizing pleasure and minimizing pain. B, you can show it with various theorems, like, you know, Harsani's aggregation theorem tells you that if you're trying to 
give others the deals and gambles they would choose, then it falls out of that, that you need some form of utilitarianism. It's a, I've written a piece kind of going into all, all the stuff this means. And people kind of say, look, like, we think we have really good reason to believe that after humanity has been around for longer, it is wiser if this happens. We will all realize that, like, the right way of thinking about what it means to be a good person is just to, yeah, basically be a utilitarian, take the amount of pleasure minus pain, add it up, maximize that, be hardcore about it. Like, don't, like, lie and be a jerk for no reason. But, like, if you ever somehow knew that doing that was going to maximize utility, that's what you should do. And I, and I ran into that point of view, and that point of view also was, I think, very, like, eye-roll at the idea that open philanthropy was going to do work in long-termism and global health and well-being. And, uh, you know, my, my basic story is, like, I have updated significantly toward that worldview compared to where I started, but I am still less than half, less than half into it. And furthermore, the way that I the way that I deal with that is not by multiplying through and doing another layer of expected value, but by saying, look, if I have a big pool of money, I think less than half of that money should be like following this worldview. I've been around for a long time in this community. I've, I think I've now heard out all of the arguments, um, and that's still where I am. And so, um, you know, my basic stance is like, I think that we are still very deeply confused about ethics. I think... Um, we don't really know what it means to do good. And I think that reducing everything to like utilitarianism is probably not workable. I think it probably actually just breaks in very simple mathematical ways. Um, and I think we probably have to have a lot of arbitrariness in our views of ethics. I think we probably have to have some version of just like caring more about people who are more similar to us or closer to us. And so I think, you know, yeah, I, I still am basically unprincipled on ethics. I still basically like, have a lot of things that I care about that I'm not sure why I care about. I would still basically take a big pot of money and divide it up between different things. I still like believe in certain moral rules that you got to follow. Not as long as you don't know the outcome, but just, you just got to follow them. End of story, period. Don't overthink it. Um, that's still where I am. So I don't know. Yeah. I wrote a dialogue trying to explain why this is for someone who thinks the reason I would think this is because I hadn't thought through all the hardcore stuff <laughs> and instead just addressing the hardcore stuff very directly. Yeah. So, yeah, prepping for for this interview, you, you might have thought that we would have ended up having a debate about whether impartial expected welfare maximization is, is the right way to live or the, or the right theory of morality. But actually, it seems like we mostly disagree on how many people actually are really all in on hardcore utilitarianism. Um, I guess my impression is at least the people that, the, that I talk to who maybe are like somewhat filtered and selected. Many people, including me, absolutely think that impartial expected welfare maximization is underrated by the general public. And I think that, yeah. Yeah. And that there's a lot of good that one can do uh, using, if you focus on increasing well-being, there's an awful lot of good that you can uh, do there and that most people aren't thinking about that. But nonetheless, uh, I'm not confident that we've solved philosophy. I'm not confident that we've solved ethics. The, The idea that pleasure is good and suffering is bad it feels like among the most plausible claims that one could make about what is valuable and what is disvaluable but we don't really like the, the idea of things being objectively valuable is an incredibly odd one <laughs> it's not clear how we could get any evidence about that that would be fully persuasive and clearly philosophers are very split so people kind of do this we're forced into this odd position of wanting to hedge our bets a bit between this theory that seems like maybe the most plausible ethical theory but also having lots of conflicting intuitions with it and also being aware that many many smart people don't agree that this is the right approach at all. But I mean, it sounds like 
you've you've ended up in conversations with people who are you know maybe they have some doubts but they are like pretty hardcore they like really feel like there's a good chance that uh when when we look back we're going to be like it was absolutely it was total utilitarianism all along and everything else was completely confused yeah i think that's right i think you you can there's definitely room for some nuance here like you don't have to think you've solved philosophy i think the position a lot of people take is more like I don't really put any weight on random common sense intuitions about what's good because those have a horrible track record. Um, just like the history of common sense morality looks like so bad that I just don't really care what it says. So I'm going to take like the best guess I've got at a systematic science like, you know, with good scientific properties of like simplicity and predictiveness system of morality. That's the best I can do. And furthermore, there's a chance it's wrong, but you can do another layer of expected value maximization and multiply that through. And so I'm, yeah, I'm basically going to act as if maximizing utility is all that matters and specifically maximizing the, you know, kind of like pleasure minus pain type thing of subjective experience. That is the best guess. That is how I should act. Uh, when I'm unsure what to do, I may follow heuristics, but if I ever run into a situation where the numbers just clearly work out, I'm going to do what the numbers say. Um, yeah. And I think, I think I, I not only think that's not, not definitely right. I, yeah. I, I, a minority of me is into that view. So I, I think I would say, is it the most plausible view? I would say no. I would say um, the most plausible view of ethics is that it's a giant mishmash of different things and that what it means to be good and do good is like a giant mishmash of different things and we're not going to nail it anytime soon. Is it the most plausible thing that's kind of like neat and clean and well-defined? Well, I would say definitely total utilitarianism is not. I think total utilitarianism is completely screwed. makes no sense. It can't work at all. But I think there's a variant of it, uh, sometimes called Udasa, that I, I'm okay kind of saying that's the most plausible we got or something and gets like a decent chunk, but not a majority of what I'm thinking about. Holden just used the term Udasa, which is U-D-A-S-S-A. It stands for Universal Distribution Absolute Self-Sampling Assumption. Now, you probably don't know what Udasa is, and uh, I, I don't really either. It's uh, some sort of attempt to deal with anthropics and the universe potentially being infinite in size uh, by not weighting all points in the universe equally and instead assigning them ever-decreasing value following some numbering system. The issue is that if you keep adding an unlimited series of ones, you get an infinite sum uh, and you have problems making comparisons to any other series that also sum to infinity. Uh, if instead you add one and then a half and then a quarter and then an eighth and then a sixteenth and so on in an infinite series, then that series actually sums to a finite number. Uh, that is two. And you will be able to make comparisons with other such series. If what I said didn't make much sense to you, don't worry. Uh, it doesn't actually need to. Uh, just know that Udasa is uh, some technical approach that might make utilitarianism uh, viable in an infinite universe. We'll stick a link to people who want to read more about Udasa, uh, but I haven't and I wouldn't blame you if you don't want to either. Okay, back to the show. Maybe it would be worth laying out like, you know, you're doing a bunch of work. Presumably it's kind of stressful sometimes in order to help other people. And you start to give well, uh, trying, you know, wanting to help the, the, the global poor. Like, what is your conception of morality and what, what motivates you to, to do things in order to, to make the world better? A lot of my answer to that is just, I don't know. Like, a lot of, like, sometimes when people interview me about these, like, thought experiments, you save the painting, I'll just be like, I'm not a philosophy professor. And, like, look, that doesn't mean I'm not interested in philosophy. Like I said, I think I've argued this stuff into the ground. Mm -hmm. But, like, a lot of my conclusion is just like philosophy is a is a non-rigorous methodology with an unimpressive track record. And I don't think it is that reliable or that important. Um, 
and it isn't that huge a part of my life. And I think I find it really interesting. So that's not because I'm unfamiliar with it. It's because I think it shouldn't be. And so I'm kind of not that philosophical a person in many ways. I'm super interested in it. I love talking about it. I have lots of takes. But I think when I make high stakes, important decisions about how to spend large amounts of money, I'm not that philosophical of a person. And most of what I do does not rely on unusual philosophical views. It I think it can be justified to someone with like quite normal takes on ethics. Yeah. So one thing is that you're not a moral realist. So you don't believe that there are kind of objective, mind-independent facts about what is good and bad and what one ought to do. I have never figured out what this position is supposed to mean. And yeah. I'm, I'm hesitant to say I'm not one because I don't even know what it means. So if you can, if you can cash something out for me that has a clear pragmatic implication, <laughs> I will tell you if I am or not. But I've never really even gotten what I'm disagreeing with or agreeing with on that one. Yeah. Okay. So from reading the article, it sounded like you had some theory of doing good that or some theory of what your the enterprise that you're engaged in when you try to live morally or when you try to make decisions about what way you should give money. Yeah, that it's something about acting on your preferences about making the world better something on acting like it's at least sure I mean about I, acting on, on, on the intuitions you have about about what good behavior is. I generally am subjectivist like I, yeah. like that is like when I hear subjectivism I'm like that sounds right when I hear moral realism I don't go that sounds wrong I'm like I don't know what you're saying like and I and I have tried to understand I'm mean, gonna try yeah. again now if you want yeah no I mean I if moral realism is true it's very queer thing as philosophers say it's a very it's it's not realism about moral facts is not seemingly uh the same as scientific facts about the world it's kind of not clear how we're causally connected to the to these facts yeah um, exactly like i don't I, i've heard many different versions of moral realism and like i think some of them i'm just like this feels like a terminological or semantic difference with my view and others i'm just like this sounds totally nutso um <laughs> I, I don't know like i just they, I, I have trouble being like in or out on this thing because it just means so many things and i don't know which one it means and i don't know what the more interesting versions are even supposed to mean but um it's it's fine like yes i'm a subjectivist like yeah. i i more or less the most natural way i think about morality is just like i decide what to do with my life and there's like certain flavors of pull that i have and those are moral flavors and i like try to make myself do the things that the moral flavors are pulling me on i think that makes me a better person when i do yeah okay so Maybe maybe a way of highlighting the differences here will be to, to to imagine this conversation where you're saying, you know, I'm leading open philanthropy. I think that we should split our efforts between a whole bunch of different projects, each one of which would look exceptional on, on, a, on a different plausible worldview. And the hardcore utilitarian comes to you and says, no, you should choose the best one and just fund that. Or you like spend all of your resources and all of your time just focused on that best one. Yep. Um, what would you say to, to them in order to, to justify the worldview diversification approach? Yeah, I mean, the first the first thing I would say to them is just like burdens on you. Um, and I think this is, you know, this is kind of a tension I often have with people who consider themselves hardcore is they'll just, you know, it's it's like they'll just be like, well, why wouldn't you be a hardcore utilitarian? Like, what's the problem? Like, why isn't it just maximizing the pleasure and minimizing the pain or, you know, the, the sum or the difference? And I would just be like, no, 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 you've got to tell me because I am sitting here with these great opportunities to help huge amounts of people in like very different and hard to compare ways and like, the way I've always done ethics before in my life is like, I basically have some voice inside me and it says, this is what's right. And that voice has to carry some weight. It's like, even on your model, that voice has to carry some weight because you, the hardcore utilitarian, not Rob, because we all know you're not at all. Um, <laughs> you know, but the, um, it's like, even the most systematic theories of ethics, it's like, they're all using that little voice inside you that says what's right. That's, that's the arbiter of all the thought experiments so that we're all putting weight on it somewhere, somehow. And I'm like, cool. That's got to be how this works. There's a voice inside me saying, this feels right, this feels wrong. That voice has got to get some weight. That voice is saying, you know what? Like, 
it is really interesting to think about these risks to humanity's future, but also like it's weird. Like this work is not shaped like the other work. It doesn't have as good feedback loops. It feels icky. Like a lot of this work is about just basically supporting people who think like us or it feels that way a lot of the time. And it just feels like doesn't doesn't have the same ring of ethics to it. And then on the other hand, it just feels like I'd be kind of a jerk if like like Open Phil, I believe, and you can disagree with me, is like not only the biggest, but the most effective farm animal welfare funder in the world. And I think we've had enormous impact and made animals' lives dramatically better. And coming to say to me, no, you should take all that money and put it like into the like diminishing margin of like supporting people to think about some future X risk in a domain where you're mostly have a lot of these concerns about insularity. Like, you've got to make the case to me because the normal way all this stuff works is you, like, listen to that voice inside your head and you care what it says. And some of the opportunities Open Phil has to do a lot of good are quite extreme and we do them. So that's that's the first thing is we've got to put the burden of the proof in the right place because I think utilitarianism is definitely interesting and has some things going for it, especially if you patch it and make it Udasa, although that makes it less appealing. But it, it you got to – where's the burden of proof? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I suppose to, to, to buy into this, the, the hardcore utilitarian view, I guess one way to do it would be, so you're committed to moral realism. I guess you're, you might be committed to hedonism as a theory of value. So it's only pleasure and pain. I guess then you also want to you add on kind of a, t- a total view. So it's just about the com- the, the complete aggregate. The, that's all that matters. Yeah. You're going to say there's there's no side constraints and kind of all of your other conflicting moral intuitions are worthless. So you should you should completely ignore those. Wonder, are, are there any other uh, moral like philosophical commitments that underpin this view that you think are like implausible and, and, and haven't been haven't been demonstrated to a, to a sufficient extent? I don't, I don't think you need all those at all. Oh, really? I mean, okay. I've, so oh. I've written up. Yeah, I've written up this series. I mean, I've steel man the hell out of this position like okay. as well as I could. Like I've written. <laughs> Of this series called Future Proof Ethics, and I think the title kind of has been confusing, and I regret it. But it's it is trying to get at this idea that I want I want an ethics that whether because it's correct and real or because it's like what I would come to on reflection, I want an ethics that's like in some sense better. That's in some sense what I would have come up with if I had more time to think about it. And what would that ethics look like? And I don't think you need moral realism to care about this. Like you can make a case for utilitarianism that just starts from like, gosh. Humanity has a horrible track record of treating people horribly. We should really try and get ahead of the curve. We shouldn't be like listening to common sense intuitions that are actually going to be quite correlated with the rest of our society. And that looks bad from a track record perspective. So we need to figure out the fundamental principles of morality as well as we can. We're not going to do it perfectly. And that's going to put us ahead of the curve and make us less likely to be the kind of people that would think we were moral monsters if we thought about it more. So you don't need moral realism. Yeah. Um, you don't need um, you don't need hedonism at all. So I think you um, you can just say – so I mean most people do do this with hedonism. But I think you can just say like if you want to use Arsani's aggregation theorem, which means if you, if you want to – if you basically want it to be the case that every time everyone would prefer one kind of state of affairs to another, you do that first state of affairs, you can get from there and some other assumptions to basically at least a form of utilitarianism that says – a large enough number of small benefits can outweigh everything else. I call this the the utility legions corollary. It's like a play on utility monsters, but it's like um, okay. once you decide that something is valuable, like helping a chicken or helping a person get a chance to exist, then there's some number of that thing that can outweigh everything else. And I think that that doesn't reference hedonism. It's like it's just this idea, like come up with anything that you think is non-trivially beneficial and a very large number of it 
beats everything and, and wins over the ethical calculus. That's like a, a whole set of mathematical or whatever steps, logical steps you can take that don't don't invoke hedonism at any point. Okay. So I think the Steelman version of this would not have a million premises. It would say, look, like, we, we really want to be ahead of the curve. That means we want to be systematic. We want to have the minimal set of principles so that we can be systematic and make sure that we're really only basing our morality on the few things we feel best about. One of the, And that's how we're going to avoid being moral monsters. One of the things we feel best about is this utilitarianism idea, which has the utility legions corollary. Once we've established that, now we can establish that, like, a person who gets to live instead of not living is a benefit, and therefore enough of them can outweigh everything else. And then we can say, look, if there's 10 to the 50 of them in the future, an expectation, that way outweighs everything else that, could, that we could ever plausibly come up with. That, to me, is the is the least assumption route. Hmm. And then you can tack on some other stuff. You can be like, also, like, people who've thought this way in the past did amazing. Jeremy Bentham was, like, the first utilitarian, and he was, like, early on women's rights and animal rights and anti-slavery and all this other, and, like, gay rights and, like, all this other stuff. And so this is just like, yep, it's, like, a simple system. It looks great looking backward. It's built on these rock-solid principles of, like, utilitarianism and systematicity and maybe sentientism, which is a thing I didn't quite cover, uh, which I should have. But, um, you know, radical impartiality, like, caring about everyone no matter where they are, as long as they're, like, physically identical, you have to care about them the same. Um, you could basically derive from that this system, and then that system tells you there's so many future generations that it just everything has to come down to them. Now, maybe you have heuristics about how to actually help them, but everything ultimately has to be how to help them. So that would be my steel man. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I've much more often encountered this the the kind of grounding for this that uh, Sharon Hewitt Rowlett talked about in in episode one hundred and thirty eight, which is this far more philosophical <laughs> um, yeah. approach to it. But you know, the the case you make there, it, it doesn't sound like some some watertight uh, thing to me because, well, especially once you start making arguments like, oh, it has a good historical track record, you'd be like, well. I'm sure I've got some stuff wrong. And also, like, maybe it could be right in the past, but wrong in the future. It's uh, yeah, yeah. it's not, not an overwhelming argument. But I guess, yeah, what do you say to people who, who bring to you this this basic steel man of the of, of the case? Yeah, I say a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, I, I think I, I would say for I, the, the first thing I would say is just like, it's not enough. Like, it's not, yeah. um, you know, it just it just we're not talking about a rigorous discipline here. You haven't done enough. The, the stakes are too high. You haven't done enough work to, to establish this. The specific things I would get into is I would first just be like, I I don't believe you by your own story. I think I've basically, you know, I think even the people who believe themselves very hardcore utilitarians, it's because they, um, no one designs thought experiments just to mess with them. And I think you totally can. Um, <laughs> that are just, you know, I mean, you know, one thought experiment I've, I've kind of used it. And not ever, anyone is going to reject some of these. But, you know, one of them is it's like, well, there's an asteroid and it's about to hit Cleveland and destroy it entirely and kill everyone there. But no one will be blamed. You know, somehow this is like has a neutral effect on the long run future. Would you prevent the asteroid hitting Cleveland for 35 cents? And it's like, well, you could give that 35 cents to, to Center for Effective Altruism or 80,000 Hours or Miri. Um, so our, as a hardcore utilitarianism, as a hardcore utilitarian, your answer has to be no, right? No, you, 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 someone offers you this, no one else can do it. You either give 35 cents or you don't to stop the asteroid from hitting Cleveland. You say no, because you want to donate that money to something else, right? I think most people will not go for that. Um, nobody, I think. Yeah. There's simpler, this is this where I think like most of these hardcore utilitarians 
actually are like, not all of them, but actually most of them are like super, super into honesty. They try to defend it. They'll be like, well, clearly honesty is like the way to maximize utility. And I'm just like, how did you figure that out? Like what? Like <laughs> you're like, you're like your level of honesty is way beyond what actual, like most of the most successful and powerful people are doing. So like, how does that work? Um, how did you, how did you determine this? This can't be right. And so I think most of these hardcore utilitarians actually have tensions within themselves that they aren't recognizing that you can just draw out if you, if you red team them instead of doing the normal philosophical thought experiments aimed at normal people. Um, and then another place I go to challenge this view is I, I do think the principles people try to build this thing on, the central ones are the utilitarianism idea, which is like this thing that I didn't explain well with the Harsani's aggregation theorem, but I do I do have it written up. You can link to it. I could try and explain it better, but whatever. I, I think it's a fine principle, so I'm not going to argue with it. Um, the other principle people are leaning on is impartiality, and I think that one is screwed and it doesn't work at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you think the impartiality uh, aspect of this is just completely busted. Uh, yeah, do, do you want to elaborate on why that is? Yeah, so so this is something, I mean, I think you covered it a bit with Joe, but I have a little bit of a different spin on it, a little bit more of an aggro spin on it. One way to think about impartiality, like a minimum condition for what we might mean by impartiality, would be that if two persons or people or whatever, I, I call them persons to just include whatever, animals and AIs and whatever, you know, two persons, let's say they're physically identical, then you should care about them equally. I, I would kind of like, I would kind of claim this is like, if you're if you're not meeting that condition, then it's weird to call yourself impartial and something is up uh, and probably the hardcore person is not a big fan of you. And I think you just can't do that. And the infinite, all the infinite ethics stuff, it just completely breaks that. Not in a way that just like a weird corner case, sometimes it might not work. It's just like, actually like, should I donate a dollar to charity? Well, like, Across the whole multiverse, incorporating expected value and a finite non-zero probability of an infinite size universe, then it just follows that my dollar like helps and hurts infinite numbers of people. And there's like no answer to whether it is a good dollar or a bad dollar, because like if it helps one person, then hurts a thousand, then helps one, then hurts a thousand onto infinity versus if it helps a thousand, then hurts one, then helps a thousand, then hurts one onto infinity. Those are the same. They're just rearranged. There is no way to compare two infinities like that. It cannot be done. It's not like no one's found it yet. It just can't be done. Your, your system actually just breaks completely. It just doesn't, it won't tell you a single thing. It, it, yeah. it returns an undefined every time you ask it a question. Yeah, um, we're, we're rushing through this, but that, that was actually was kind of the bottom line of the episode with Alan Hayek. Uh, it was episode 139 on, on puzzles and paradoxes and probability and expected value. It's just, it's a bad picture. <laughs> it's not a pleasant, it's not a pretty picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And I have other beefs with impartiality. I think I should actually go on for quite a while and at some point I'll write it all up. But I think just like anything you try to do where you're just like, here's a physical pattern or a physical process or a physical thing. And everywhere it is, I care about it equally. I'm just like, that is, you're going to be so screwed. It's not going to work. The infinities are the easiest to explain way. It doesn't work, but it just doesn't work. And so, and so the whole idea that you were building this beautiful utilitarian system on one of the things you could be confident in. Well, one of the things you were confident in was impartiality and it's got to go. And like, you know, Joe kind of presented, it's like, well, you have these tough choices in infinite ethics because you can't have all of Pareto and impartiality, which he called anonymity and um, transitivity. And I'm like, yeah, you can't have all of them. You got to obviously drop impartiality. You can't make it work. The other two are better. Keep the other two, drop impartiality. Once you drop impartiality, I don't know. Now we're in the world of just like, some things are physically identical, but you care more about one than the other. In some ways, that's a very familiar world. Like, I care more about my family than about other people, really not for any good reason. You just have to lean into that because that's what you are as a human being. You care more about some things than others, not for good reasons. 
you can use that to get out of all the infinite ethics jams. It's like there's some trick to it and it's not super easy. But basically, as long as you're not committing to caring about everyone, you're going to be OK. And as long as you are, you're not. So don't care about everyone. And this whole <laughs> fundamental principle that was supposed to be powering this beautiful morality just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you want to explain a little bit the uh, the mechanism that you'd use to get away from it? Or basically, you could have if you define some kind of central point and then have some like as things get further and further away from that central point, then you value them less. As, lo- as long as you value them less at a sufficiently rapid rate, then things sum to one rather than ending up summing to infinity. And so, yeah, exactly. That's uh, about right. so now you can yeah. make comparisons again. Yeah, and this is all me bastardizing and oversimplifying stuff. But basically, you need, you need some system that says we're discounting things uh, at a fast enough rate that everything adds up to a finite number. And we're discounting them even when they're physically identical to each other, we got to have some other way of discounting them. So like, you know, a stupid version of this would be like, you declare a center of the universe in space and time and Everett branch and everything like that. And you just like discount by distance from that center. And if you discount fast enough, you're fine. And you don't run into the infinities. You know, the way that I think is like more people are into, I've referred to it a couple times already, Udasa is like, you kind of say, hey, I'm going to discount you by how long a computer program I have to write to point to you. And then you're going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? What, <laughs> what, what computer program in what language? And I'm like, whatever language, pick a language, it'll work. And you're like, but that's so horrible. That's so arbitrary. So if I pick Python versus I picked Ruby, then that'll affect who I care about. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's all arbitrary. It's all stupid. But at least you didn't get screwed by the infinities. Anyway, so I think, I think if I were to be... If I were to take the closest thing to a beautiful, simple utilitarian system that gets everything right, um, Udasa would actually be my best guess. And it's and it's pretty unappealing. And most people who say they're hardcore say they hate it. I think it's the best contender. It's better than than actually adding everything up. So that that's one approach you could take. I, I guess the infinity stuff makes me sad because it's in as much as uh, we're right that we're just not going to be able to solve this. So we're not going to come up with any elegant solution that resembles our intuitions or that like embodies impartiality in the way that we cared about now, now you know now we're valuing one person because it was easier to specify where they are in <laughs> using the ruby programming language yep that doesn't capture my intuitions about value or about ethics uh that it's it's a very long way from them in actual fact yeah. it feels like any system like that is just so far away from what i enter this entire enterprise caring about that i'm tempted to just give up and like embrace nihilism or yeah just, okay, i think yeah, that's a good not, temptation yeah. not nihilism or, I mean, or just be like i'm just gonna do stuff that i want to do and yeah. yeah well i mean look I, that's kind of where i am i mean i think i'm like look udas is the best you can do you probably like it a lot less than what you thought you were doing and a reasonable response would be, screw all this. And then after you screw all this, okay, what are you doing? And I'm like, okay, well, what I'm doing... Well, I still like my job. I still so like I my job. So, yeah. I still care about my family. <laughs> and you know what? I still want to be a good person. What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I notice when I do something that feels like it's bad. I notice when I do something that feels like it's good. I notice that, like, I'm glad I started a charity evaluator that helps people in Africa and India instead of just spending my whole life making money. Like... I don't know. That didn't change. I'm still glad I did that. And I'm just, I don't have a beautiful philosophical system that gives you three principles that can derive it, but I'm still glad I did it. And that's pretty much where I'm at. And and that's where I come back to just being like, I'm not that much of a philosophy guy because I think philosophy isn't really that promising, but I am a guy who like works really hard to try and do a lot of good because I don't think you need to be a philosophy guy to do that. Just said in the interview that, you know, if, if your philosophy feels like it's breaking, then that's probably a problem with the philosophy rather than with you. And I wonder whether we can turn that to this case where we say, well, we don't really know why induction works, but nonetheless, we all go about our lives as if induction is reasonable. And likewise, we might say, we don't know the solution to these like infinity paradoxes in the multiverse and all of that. 
Uh, but nonetheless, like impartial welfare maximization feels right. And so hopefully at some point we'll figure out how to make this work and how to, how to make it reasonable. And, you know, in the meantime, I'm not going to let these funny philosophical thought experiments like take away from me what I thought the core of ethics uh, really, really was. But my question is, why is that the core of ethics? So my, my thing is, I, I want to come back to the burden of proof. I think I just want to be like, fine, we give up. Now what are we doing? And I'm like, look, if someone had a better idea than induction, I'd be pretty interested. But it seems like no <laughs> one does. But like, I do think there is an alternative to these like very simple, beautiful systems of ethics that like tell you exactly when to break all the normal rules. I think the alternative is just like, you don't have a beautiful system. You're just like a person like everyone else. Like just imagine that you're not very into philosophy and you still care about being a good person. That's most people. You can do that. That seems like the right default. Mm. Then you got to talk me out of that. You got to be like, Holden, here's something that's much better than that, even though it breaks. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't heard someone do that. Yeah. Well, despite everything that you've just said, you think you say that you think that impartial expected welfare maximization is underrated. <laughs> you think more yeah. you wish that people did it did, like the, that the random person on the street did it more. Do you want to want to explain how that can possibly be? I don't think Udas is that bad. I think, like, I mean, I don't, I don't think, like, there's no way it's going to be, like, the final answer or something. But the idea that it's, like, I don't know, like, something like that, and later we're going to come up with something better that's kind of like it. There's going to be partiality in there. It might be that it's some sort of, like, I tried to be partial and arbitrary, but in a very principled way, where I just kind of take take the universe as I live in it and try to be fair and nice to those around me and I have to weight them a certain way. And so I took the simplest way of weighting them. And it's like, it's not going to be as compelling as the original vision for utilitarianism was supposed to be. But I don't think it's that bad. And I think there's like some arguments that are actually like this, this weird simplicity criterion of like how easy it is to find you with a computer program. You could think of that as like, what is your measure in the universe? Or like, how much do you exist? Or how much of you is there in the universe? There are some arguments you could think of it that way. So I don't know. I don't think Udass is like totally screwed, but I'm not about to like shut down open philanthropies like Farm Animal <laughs> Welfare Program because of this Udassa system. So that's, yeah, that's more or less the middle ground that, that I've come to. Yeah. You know, I also just think there's a lot of good in just like, cha- for, without the beautiful system, just challenging yourself, just saying, hey, common sense morality really has done badly. Can I do better? Can I like do some thought experiments until I really believe with my heart that I care a lot more about the future than I thought I did and think a lot about the future. I think that's fine. I think the part where you say the 10 to the 50 number is taken literally and like is in the master system is exactly 10 to the 50 X as important as saving one life. I think that's the dicier part. Yeah. I I thought you might say that, you know, the typical person walking around who hasn't thought about any of these issues, they nonetheless care about other people and about having their lives go well, like at least a bit. Uh, and they might not have appreciated like just how large an impact they could have if they turned a bit of their attention to that, how much they might be able to help other people. Exactly. So without any like deep philosophy or any like great reflection or changing in their values, uh, it's actually just pretty appealing to yeah, uh, yeah. to help to like do things that effectively help other people. Yeah. And that's kind of what motivates you, I imagine. Totally. I, I love trying to do the most good possible, <laughs> uh, defining kind of a sloppy way that isn't a beautiful system. And and I even like the philosophical thought experience. They, they have made me move a bit more toward caring about future generations and especially whether they get to exist, which I think intuitively is not exciting to me at all, still isn't that exciting to me, but is more than it used to be. So, you know, I think I think there's like value in here, but the value comes from like wrestling with the stuff, thinking about it and deciding where your heart comes out in the end. But but I just think the dream of a beautiful system isn't there. I guess the, the final thing I want to throw in there, too, is I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but if you if you did go in on Udasa or you had the beautiful system or you somehow managed to be totally impartial, uh, I do think long-termism is a weird conclusion from that. And so you, you at least should at least should realize that what you actually should care about is something far weirder than future generations. And if you're still comfortable with it, great. And if you're not, you may want to also rethink things. Yeah. 
So a slightly funny thing about having this conversation in 2023 is that I think worldview diversification doesn't get us as far as it used to, or, or the idea of wanting to split your bets across different worldviews. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. As AI becomes like just a more dominant and obviously important consideration in how things are going to play out, like n- not not just for strange existential risk-related reasons, but it seems incredibly related now to, you know, we'll be able to get people out of poverty. We'll be, be able to solve lots of medical problems. It wouldn't be that crazy to try to help farm animals by doing something related to uh, ML models at some point in the, next, in the next few decades. And also, if you think that it's plausible that we could go extinct because of AI in the next 10 years, then just from a life saving, just, like from, just yeah. in terms of saving lives of people alive right now, totally. it seems like an incredibly important and, and neglected issue. It's just a funny situation to be in where like the different worldviews that we kind of picked out 10 years ago now like might all kind of be converging, at least temporarily, on a very similar set of activities because of some very like odd, historically abnormal, like indeed like deeply suspicious empirical facts that we happen to be living through right now. That's exactly how I feel. And it's and it's all very awkward because it just it, it makes it hard for me to explain why I even disagree with people on because I'm kind of like, well, I do believe we should be mostly focused on AI risk, though not exclusively. And I, and I am glad that OpenPhil puts money in other things. But, you know, I do believe AI risk is like the biggest headline because of these crazy historical events that could be upon us. I disagree with these other people who say we should be into AI risk because of this insight about the size of the future. Well, that's awkward. And it's it's kind of a strange state of affairs, and I haven't always known what to do with it. But I, yeah, I do feel that the effect of altruism community has has kind of felt philosophy first. It's kind of felt like our big insight is there's a lot of people in the future, and then we've kind of worked out the empirics and determined the biggest threat to them is AI, and I just like reversing it. I just like being like, we are in an incredible historical period, no matter what your philosophy, you should care a lot about AI, and this stuff about most of the people being in the future, I think it's like, it's interesting. I don't think it's worthless. I put some weight on it, but I don't think it's as important an argument, really. And I think if you try and really nail it and build a beautiful philosophical system around it, the system will either just break or it will like go into much, much weirder territory. Yeah, Carl Schulman made this case a couple of years ago as well in uh, it was episode 112, uh, Carl Schulman on the common sense case for existential risk work. I think, yeah, he was kind of saying similar things that we're on much weaker ground with a lot of this philosophy than, than people might imagine. And really the thing that in practice would cause many more people to value uh, work to reduce existential risk is just agreeing with us on how high the risk is, that the risk is, yep. the, the, the juice comes from the empirical claim that in fact we're at enormous risk, whereas most people don't believe that or or they believe that in some very vague sense, but they haven't really understood what that implies. Another thing I would just like on this topic, like I think people are listening to me and being like, whoa, Holden's totally wrong. Like I've got a beautiful hardcore system. I would I would encourage you a just like, I don't know, arguments for authority. I would encourage you to read Mount Ethics by Nick Bostrom. Like I think um, I think he's clearly got some different intuitions about morality from this like super hardcore thing. And he's often seen as as kind of the person who did the most for the super hardcore long-termist point of view. And I would also just say, like, I would listen to the Joe podcast and I would really think about, like, even if you want to embrace this stuff, like, where it goes, because I think it goes something very different. I don't think future generations are where most of the value is on this view. Um, And I think that, like, actually there becomes, like, a really good case for just, like, being cooperative and nice. And, like, I think if, if anything, if you want to be really hardcore and impartial, you might start caring more about, like, helping little old ladies cross the street and being nice and being cooperative and like making sure we treat the AI systems well instead of worrying so much about how they're going to treat us. Like there's arguments that that kind of stuff is actually become like enormous. Um, and and I think if, if you're finding that all too weird, you should probably just become like a not a super philosophy person um, like me. But it, but if you want to be weird, I think I think I would encourage listening to the Joe interview and, and going down that trail instead. 
I don't know. It doesn't that doesn't sound too bad? Maybe maybe, maybe I'll become hardcore in that. Even yeah, I'll flip it, flip around, <laughs> become hardcore, but then do like normal stuff. Well, it's like maybe it's all it's all like maybe and confusing. It's all like maybe this is the biggest thing, or maybe it's not at all. And like maybe thinking about it is bad. Or, or you should do the opposite of that. Yeah, or maybe thinking about it is super dangerous. And the thing to do is to think about whether you should think about it. It's just like it's going to be a mess. Uh, is my prediction. All right. This is all all been a little bit heavy, so so let's let's wrap up with a with a slightly funner one. Um, yeah, over the years, I've heard many people say that they're skeptical about kind of any long term planning for humanity's future because they think that you know efforts many fifty hundred years ago to predict the future just have an incredibly poor track record. People just kind of embarrass themselves with the stuff that with, with the way that they thought the present would be, and uh, because of that, you know, efforts to guide the future in a positive direction are probably also similarly futile because we're not going to be able to expect how things are going to be. But yeah, you you, t- you took a uh, an actual look at this last year and wrote up an article titled "The Track Record of Futurists Seems Fine." Yeah, um, yeah. What, what, what did you end up concluding? Well, I ended up concluding that, uh, like, I don't know. I think I think I mostly we should just say we don't know what the track record of futurists is. And I think that there are people who say the future is so hard to predict, and everyone just looks stupid after they try to predict the future, and you're going to look stupid too. And I think it's just like too strong. Um, I also don't think that, like, I do think predicting the future is hard, and I don't think I have evidence that, like, it's easy or anyone has done a great job of it. But, like, I did a kind of really easy, simple thing. I was just like, I don't know, who are three famous people who think about the future? The big three science fiction writers, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Arthur Clarke. Let's just, like, find a bunch of their predictions and score them and see how they did. We contracted with Arb Research to do that. And, you know, it came out and it was like, I looked at the results and I was like, you know, I'm pretty impressed by Asimov. That's not like a quantitative statement I can I can prove. We didn't have a benchmark we were comparing him to or like a clear place where his Breyer score needed to be in a certain place. He wasn't giving probabilities. But like when I look at his scored list of predictions and I read the predictions and I ask myself how hard they were, I'm like, you know, Asimov did a pretty, he had a lot of big misses. He had a lot of big hits and like definitely doesn't seem like a monkey throwing darts at a dartboard. Heinlein did kind of a terrible job, but had a couple hits. Um... Clark was somewhere in between. And I think I just came up being like, let's all slow our roll here. Like, mostly people have not tried to predict the far future with a lot of seriousness. These are sci-fi writers just, like, saying stuff. You rarely see something more rigorous than that. You almost never see something where people put probabilities on things and gave their reasons. Um, Looked at some of those, too, and come to similar conclusions. So I would just say, like, let's slow our roll. Like, we kind of just don't know how good we are at predicting the future. Most people haven't tried that hard. And when the stakes are this high, we should do our best and see how it goes. Since then, I've seen criticisms of this piece of mine, and I've seen, like, two different analyses done comparing the criticisms to my original piece, and I just haven't had time to process it all, and I think I eventually will. I think I'm going to come out a similar place that just, like, we just don't really know, but I might come out saying, actually, all these people humiliated themselves, and maybe we should be less confident. <laughs> well, can you recall what the most impressive prediction from, from Asimov was? Like, it's like 1964, and he's like, in 2014, only unmanned ships will have landed on Mars, though a manned expedition will be in the works. Stuff like that. They're, they're just like, it's a bunch of, you have to read the predictions and just like think about how you feel about them. It's not, I, I don't claim that there's like a number that I can shove in your face and be like, they nailed it. I think that the more literally you take it and the more you're like, they had to be dead on or I'm scoring them incorrect, the worse it's going to look. But I just think if you think everyone... Everyone talking about these AI risks is just going to look like a total fool and like not even wrong and everything turned out totally different from what they think. I'm just like, I don't think that's something you should be confident in. And if you look at Asimov's prediction, he doesn't look like that much of a fool. He looks like he got some stuff wrong. 
Yeah, I would uh, definitely bet against that as well. Um, last time we did an interview, uh, you said you were about to about to take some leave because uh, uh, your partner was about to have a kid. I'm now intending to to to, to start a family as well. Fingers fingers crossed. Um, oh, nice! I got to talk with Ellie Ellie Hassenfeld about his his, his experience uh, cool. making a family uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, how's it how's it been for you? What is it, what, what surprising stuff has happened? Yeah, I, I think the biggest surprise for me has been on the positive side. It's it's weird. I think it's like I'm I'm in a weird part of the discourse where just like the discourse on kids is just like you'll hate every minute of it. It'll have all these downsides, but like, you know, you want to do it and like, or, or, you know, maybe part of you needs to do it or you'll be glad you did it or something. And I think the, like the happiness impact for me has been like way more positive than I expected. So like the hard parts have been, you know, whatever they've been the hardest as they were supposed to be. But the, um, both my wife and I are just like, wow, we did not think it would be this much fun. Like we did not like, we did not think it would like increase our happiness. That was not what we were expecting. And like, (laughs) I don't know. I just feel like it's a, it's a complicated experience. Everyone experiences it differently. But that was the, that was the thing that surprised me most is just like the best part of my day, like 80 percent of the time or something is just like hanging out with the kid um, and kind of doing nothing. So, yeah, it's just uh, just weird and surprising. Yeah. Do you have any idea of what the mechanism is? I suppose. I mean, the, yeah, the standard narrative is that you sacrifice short term happiness for kind of long term fulfillment or something. Yeah. But it's, yeah. No. That, yeah. That's why I was surprised. Yeah. I just I don't understand it. I just um. I just feel like I uh, I just enjoy hanging out with him for absolutely no yeah. good reason at all. <laughs> I yeah. guess so. Uh, and and more and and just like it, yeah, I, I don't know. I just expected it to be like I want to do it, but it's not fun. But no, it's just like super fun. I see. Yeah, it's like way more fun. It's way more fun than other things I do for fun. It's weird. Uh, it sounds like your genes have solved the alignment problem with Holden uh, a, little, a little bit more yeah, than, than people exactly. might have thought. Um, yeah, well, well, I'm very partial to myself, so, so fingers crossed I get lots of pleasure from it as well. <laughs> My guest today has been Holden Garnowski. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Holden. Yeah, thank you, Rob. Hey, listeners. I uh, just wanted to comment on two things that came up in the last episode with Ezra Klein. The first one is uh, is quite charming. You might recall Ezra said that Chuck Schumer had given a talk announcing his proposed safe innovation framework at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology, when that talk was actually at the similarly named CSIS, or Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I noted that, but we kept it all in because, frankly, I thought the point Ezra was making was correct, uh, even if this wasn't uh, such a great example of it. But it turns out CSIS might, in fact, be an even better example of a fairly small investment in doing relevant work in D.C., uh, and building uh, relevant relationships with legislators paying off. Because as a listener helpfully pointed out, this foreign relations think tank, CSIS, actually does have a small program on AI, uh, funded mostly or maybe even entirely by people worried about existential threats from AI. And even that pretty modest program, uh, smaller than the Center for Security and Emerging Technology by far, uh, was enough for Chuck Schumer to decide to announce his safe innovation framework there. We got strong feedback from listeners on a second point as well. If you listened, you might recall that Ezra said he was troubled that from his anecdotal experience just meeting and talking to people, that so many folks who were concerned about existential threats from AI were doing high-level work around how AI governance ideally might be set up uh, years in the future. But few that Ezra met were engaging with current legislative proposals and suggesting improvements to them or meeting with people in Congress in order to build relationships and trust and uh, and, and inform legislators in ways that could be useful down the, down the line as well. Uh, that was also my anecdotal perception as well. And it's my perception that this is generally true across almost all policy areas. I 
I really loved an interview Ezra did with Jennifer Palka uh, earlier this year titled, uh, the episode was titled, The Book I Wish Every Policymaker Would Read. Um, and it basically talks about how, by and large, people are more concerned with discussing high-level principles that legislation ought to follow and less in looking at the implementation details. Uh, and that skew creates all sorts of problems for people who are meant to actually be figuring out how to deliver government services. Now, one could plausibly argue back that Perhaps actually at, at this stage of the game, it's better to keep working on the higher level questions around AI governance, because really we need a radically different approach than anything currently being su- suggested. And so incremental amendments to current legislation, uh, someone with this view uh, would say probably just isn't that helpful. I also know that years ago, plenty of folks were nervous about doing government work on AI because they feared that that might hasten the militarization of AI, and they thought that that would, that would end up being for the worse. But actually, I mostly heard back from people objecting pretty strongly to whether it actually is true that in this case, there's a lack of nuts and bolts policy discussion with people in DC. Uh, of course, as I, as I mentioned in the conversation, there's CSET, uh, Center for Security and Emerging Technology, which, like 80,000 Hours, has gotten funding from Open Philanthropy. Uh, and it's been around for years working on threats from AI and other related issues. Um, I actually interviewed Helen Toner, uh, one, one of the founders of CSET, and now an OpenAI board member uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, that, that was episode 61. Helen Toner on emerging technology, national security, and uh, and China. And I saw on, on Twitter this week that Dario Amade, who spoke about AI risk on, on this show back in, uh, in, I think it was the second or third episode uh, in 2017, he now leads Anthropic and he's been attending meetings at the at the White House uh, from what I've seen in the news. Uh, but, but this week he testified in front of a Senate committee about risks posed by AI and put forward a, a whole bunch of specific policy ideas that I imagine staff at Anthropic have been thinking up and, and working on for, for some time. Uh, Joshua Bengio and Stuart Russell, the most cited computer scientist and the author of the main AI textbook, respectively, uh, gave related testimony uh, alongside him there. There's also going on the Future of Life Institute's involvement with details of the EU AI Act uh, and the advocacy that they've been doing around regulation of killer robots for for many years now. If you're interested to to learn about that, you can find uh, out more by Googling strengthening the European Union AI Act, uh, if, if you like. I think the reason... The Future of Life Institute focused on regulation in the EU is actually simply that the EU started drafting their big piece of AI legislation uh, a couple of years earlier. So that seemed like a, like like the bigger opportunity uh, when when they were when they were coming up with with the strategy. And I also know there are lots of people with lower profiles who are out in the trenches doing this sort of work uh, in DC and beyond uh, who aren't so visible to Ezra and me. And I very much part saying this in significant part because I really don't want people uh, to feel undervalued uh, by the discussion on the podcast uh, just because we uh, didn't happen to know the details of what of what people are up to. This is such important work, and I really appreciate people who have thrown themselves into it. Anyway, while obviously I still would love to see more people in these roles focusing on AI governance and policy in DC and in many other places, I have been happy to learn this week that the space isn't quite as neglected as I'd previously thought. Uh, I think that's a uh, that's, that's, that's really good news in my mind. All right. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that, that episode with Holden. And <laughs> maybe if you hadn't listened to the episode with Ezra, uh, the, the, the clarifications just there might, might, might tempt you to go back and check it out. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing for this episode by Simon Monsour. Full transcripts and extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>